Shalom, shalom. Welcome, welcome, world changers. Tonight, we're going to get into very, very valuable scriptures. I'm talking about Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. Again, uh, let your Christian friends know that it's going to be an awesome, awesome live stream and get them to tune in. All right, guys. Well, we're going to get into some amazing scriptures here. Second Kings chapter 19, uh, Psalms 46, 80, 135. And then we're going to dive into Isaiah, Isaiah 49 through 53. Now, I know uh, a lot of you are, you'll be looking forward to uh, some of this. Actually, all of these scriptures are really, really, uh, I mean, hey, it's, it's scripture. So it's awesome. Uh, so, it just happens to be that uh, the last chapter we're going to be reading is Psalm 53. Psalm 53. And so we're going to get into that. I know that's a biggie in uh, in Christian uh, circles today as well as in uh, the Jewish circles as well. I mean, they, I'm going to talk about both points of view and we're going to we're going to hash this out. OK, we're going to hash this out. So, OK. Um, just seeing if we have, if you have any questions or comments, please put, uh, please put it in the live chat at, at Christopher, especially over there uh, on YouTube. And we have Pintman or Pintman says, praises to the most high. Yes. Amen. Amen. Yes, absolutely. See, Lord willing, I, I will say this before we get, before we dive right into this, Lord willing. Um, sometime, I don't know, uh, maybe in the summertime, early summer, hopefully, uh, we will be going live with live musicians. I know we have Hannah, uh, but, uh, Lord willing, we'll have more than Hannah. Uh, we'll have like, uh, an entire crew of live musicians and, uh, you know, Lord willing, I'll jump in there as well and, uh, and, and do some playing and, uh, and and singing and such. So looking forward to that uh, by, by the grace of God. Uh, so another thing is this coming Friday, Lord willing, again, we have uh, Dr. Jason A. Staples with us. Okay. Dr. Jason A. Staples, uh, an amazing book here called The Idea of Israel in Second Te uh, Temple Judaism, and it talks, really, it's all about Israel. Um, in fact, if you just had the title Israel, I mean, that would be it right there. And it's, it talks about who Israel is and every everything you can imagine about, about Israel is, is talked about in this book. So um, almost 400 pages thick. Actually, no, it's over 400 pages thick, uh, not including the... Uh, the preface, yeah, it's about four hundred and about four hundred and fifty pages. So, um, looking forward to that. Looking forward to having Dr. Jason A. Staples with us this coming Friday. Once again, um, mark that on your calendar. So that'll be this coming Friday, seven p.m. Eastern. Uh, really looking forward to that. Caballero says shalom, shalom, Caballero. Good to see you. Tori says shalom, everyone. Shalom, Tori. Good to see you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Blessings multiplied to you guys. Okay, so let's do this. Second Kings or Two Kings, chapter 19. Uh, for some reason it's a little, tad bit slow here. 
And Lord willing, Lord willing as well, maybe we'll get some new equipment and get some better connection, faster, uh, faster equipment here. So things are better. Uh, Alex says, Shalom, Shalom, Alex. Welcome. God bless you. Blessings multiplied to each one of you, by the way, that are listening. Every one of you in the live chat and those of you who are listening that are not, that didn't put anything in the live chat, blessings multiplied to you guys in abundance. Uh, as always, I pray this would be a wonderful, wonderful time of uh, exhortation and learning uh, some of the uh, of the uh, scriptures, learning of the ways of God. And so, yeah, amazing. The Great Deception says, Shalom, everyone. Shalom, the Great Deceptions. Great Deception. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Blessings multiplied to you as always. So let's get into this. Let's get into this. This is um, 2 Kings chapter 19. Now, when King Hezekiah heard the report, he tore his clothes. Now, uh, just to go back here a little bit, to give a little bit of context, 2 Kings chapter 18. Um, let me just see here. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't want to be going through a whole lot extra here. Okay, so let's just read the last couple uh, paragraphs here before we get into 2 Kings chapter 19, just to give some context. Uh, so I'm going to start with 2 Kings 18, 28. It says, Then Rabshakeh stood up and shouted with a loud voice in Judean. In Judean uh, would be uh, Hebrew, by the way. Saying, Hear the word of the great king. The king of Assyria. This is what the Lord, or this is what the king says. Um, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to save you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah lead you to trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will certainly save us, and this city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat. Uh, each one from his vine and each one his fig tree and drink each one uh, the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive uh, trees producing oil and of honey so that you will live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah because he misleads you by saying the Lord will save us. Has any of the gods of the nations actually saved uh, his land uh, from the hand of the king of Assyria? Uh, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Uh, where are the gods of Shephavayim, Hena, and Eva? Uh, have, they, have they saved Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands are, are there who have saved their land from my hand, that the Lord would save Jerusalem from my hand. But the people were silent and did not, even with a word, because command, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, uh, who was in charge of the household, and Shabna the scribe, and Yoah, son of Asaph, the secretary, came to Hilkiah with their 
with their clothes torn, and they reported to of Rav Sheka. Second King 18, verse 1. Now, when King Hezekiah heard the report, he tore his clothes, covered himself in sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the household with Shabna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and humiliation. For children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to, to deliver them. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to taunt the living God, who will avenge the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, this is what you shall say to the master, to your master. The Lord says this, Do not be fearful because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I am going to put a spirit in him so that, uh, so that he will hear news and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say about Tirhaka, king of Cush, behold, he was come out to fight you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, This is what you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by saying Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Behold, you yourself have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be saved? Did the gods of the nations which my fathers destroyed save them? Gozan, Haran, Rezaf, and the sons of Aden uh, who were in Telassar? Uh, where is the king Amath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shepharvaim, and of Hena and Eva? Then Hez took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, Lord, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are, you are, the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to taunt the living God. Is it true? Excuse me. It is true, Lord. The kings of Assyria have laid waste to the, nation, to the nations and their lands, and have hurled their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but only the work of human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. But now, Lord our God, please save us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Then Hezekiah the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah, excuse me, then Isaiah the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah, saying, This is what the Lord the God of Israel says, 
Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is what the Lord, uh, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She, the virgin daughter of Zion, has shown contempt for you and mocked you. She, the daughter of Jerusalem, has taken her head behind you. Excuse me, has taken her head. <laughs> uh, okay, let me do this again. She, the daughter of Jerusalem, has shaken her head behind you. Whom have you taunted and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily raised your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you have taunted the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I went up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I will cast down its tall cedars and its choicest junipers. And I entered its farthest resting place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and with the soles of my feet I dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it about, that you would turn fortified cities into ruined heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were powerless. They were, they were shattered and were put to shame. They were, they were like the vegetation of the field and the green grass, like grass on the housetops that is scorched before it has grown. But, but I know you're sitting down, you're going out, you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because of your complacency, and because your complacency has come up to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what grows of itself, and in the third year sow, harvest, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The survivors that are left of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will you will go a remnant and survivors out of Mount Zion. Zeal of the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says to the king of Assyria: He will not come to this city, nor shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield, nor heap up an assault ramp against it. By the way that he came. By the same he will return. He shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will protect this city to save it for my own sake and for the and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 camp of, Assyria, of the Assyrians. And when the rest got up Early in the morning, behold, all of the 185,000 were dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Then it came about, as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Ad Adramalech and Sharezer uh, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat and his son Ararat. Uh, Esarhaddon became king in his place. All right, just a second here. Let me check some of the live chat before we get into the Psalms. Um, 
and strength, a very ready help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth shakes and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. So, let me, let me just stop here for a second. Very, very uh, awesome here. God is our refuge and our strength. Uh, basically, look at this. So, uh, the psalmist here is so, so confident that uh, basically um, we will not fear. We will trust in God even if uh, the, the earth is completely destroyed, basically. Um, Verse four, there is a river whose, there is a river whose streams make the city of God happy. The holy dwelling places of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth quaked. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has inflicted horrific events on the earth. By the way, I can't help but think, you know, this is the God of love, right? This is, this is what it says that, you know, in, in uh, first John, God is love, right? And some people would say, well, well, God is different than the Lord. Well, I've heard it that some people think, well, God is different than the Lord. The Lord is more um, like the Lord is easier on people than God is, but that's not the truth. Uh, you know, we have the Lord God, right? It's the Lord God. And um, here we have, behold, the works of the Lord. He has inflicted horrific events on the earth. Verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Stop striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. God, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Okay, so um, Psalm 80 is the next one. Psalm 80. For the music director, set to El Shoshanim, a duth, a psalm of Asaph, or a psalm of Asaph. Listen, shepherd of Israel, who leads Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, awaken your power and come to save us. God, restore us and make your face shine upon us and we will be saved. Lord God of armies, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, 
and you have made them drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. God of armies, and make your face shine upon us, and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its branch. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the, to the Euphrates River. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. God of armies, do turn back. Look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine, the shoot which your right hand has planted, and of the son whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish from the rebuke of your face. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Lord God of armies, make your face shine upon us, and we will be saved. Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him. You servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courtyards of the, ho- of the house of our God, praise the Lord. The Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen for himself Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our God is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth in the seas, and in all the ocean depths. He causes the mist to ascend from the, from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from, it, from his treasuries. He struck the firstborn of Egypt, both human firstborn and animal. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck many nations and brought death to mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, or Bashan, in all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people Israel. Your name, Lord, is everlasting. The mention of you, Lord, is throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are are nothing but silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will become like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. House of Israel, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, 
bless the Lord. House of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. All right, let's go to Isaiah. Um, okay, we got to go over here to Isaiah. Chapter 49, the servant and light to the Gentiles. Hearken to me, you I, and attend, you Gentiles. Yeah, just to stop for a second here. Whenever you see the word islands or nations, um, that kind of thing, it's usually, it usually means Gentiles. After a long time, it shall come to pass, saith the Lord, from my mother's womb, he has called my name. And he has made my mouth as, as a sharp sword. And he has hid me under the shadow of his hand. He has made me as a choice shaft, and he has hid me in his quiver. He said to me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, and in thee I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have given my strength for vanity and for nothing. Therefore is my judgment with the Lord and my labor before my God. And now thus saith the Lord that formed thee from the womb to be his own servant, to gather Jacob to him in Israel. I shall be gathered and glorified before the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said to me, It is a great thing for you to be called my servant. To establish the tribes of Jacob and to recover the dispersion of Israel, behold, I have given you for a covenant of a race, for a light of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord that delivered you, the God of Israel, sanctify him that despises his life, him that is abhorred by the nations, that are, that are the servants of princes, kings shall behold him, and princes shall arise, and shall worship him for the Lord's sake. For the Holy One of Israel is faithful, and I have chosen you. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have succored you, and I have formed you, and given you for a covenant of the nations to establish the earth and to cause to inherit the desert heritage, heritages. Saying to them that are in bonds, go forth, and bidding them that are in darkness, show themselves. They shall be fed in all the ways and in, the, in all the paths shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger, neither shall they thirst, neither shall heat nor the sun smite them. But he that has mercy on them shall comfort them, and by fountains of waters shall he lead them. I will make every mountain a way and every path a pasture to them. Behold, these shall come from far, and these from the north and the west, and others from the land of the Persians. Rejoice, you heavens, and let the earth be glad. Let the mountains break forth with joy, for the Lord has had mercy on his people.
people and has comforted the lowly ones of his people. But Zion said, the Lord, sh- the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Will a woman forget her child so as not to have compassion upon the offspring of her womb? But if a woman should forget these, yet I will not forget you, saith the Lord. Behold, I have painted your walls on my hands, and you are continually before me. And you shall soon be built by those whom you were destroyed. And they that made you desolate shall go forth of you. Lift up your eyes round about, and look on them all. Behold, they are gathered together, they are come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall clothe yourself with them as with an ornament, and put them on as a bride, as on a, excuse me, on as a bride her attire. For your, for your desert and Marred and ruined places shall not be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. And that and, and they that devoured you shall be removed far from you. For your sons whom you have lost shall say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me that I may dwell. And you shall say in your heart, Who has begotten me these? Whereas I was childless and a widow, but who has brought up these for me? But I was left alone, but from where came these to me? Thus saith the Lord, even the Lord, behold, I lift up my hand to the nations, and I will lift up my signal to the, to the islands, and they shall bring your sons in their bosom, and they shall, and shall bear your daughters on their shoulders. And kings shall be your uh, shall be your nursing fathers, and your princesses, your your nurses. They shall bow down to you on the face of the earth, and shall lick the dust of your feet. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And they that wait on me shall not be ashamed. Will any of will any take? Excuse me. Will anyone take spoils from a giant? And if one should take a man captive unjustly, shall he be delivered? For thus saith the Lord, If one take a giant captive, he shall take spoils. And he who takes them from a mighty man uh, shall, be, shall be delivered. For I will plead your, your cause, and I will deliver your children. And they that afflicted you shall eat their own flesh. And they shall drink their own blood as new wine, and shall be drunken, and all the flesh, and all flesh shall perceive that I am the Lord that delivers you, and that upholds the strength of Jacob. Okay. Just check the check the live chat here before we get too far. Um Love the truth says, Shalom, brother Chris. Shalom, good to see you. 
Okay, so something very interesting here. Um, something very interesting here. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16. So it says, Behold, I have inscribed, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Uh, okay, so this particular verse. This one right here, for those of you who are watching on YouTube. Um, so some people believe that this is talking about like the crucifixion where. Um, almost like how when Yeshua showed his hands to uh, to Thomas, right? Here, stick your sit here. Stick your fingers in, in the holes of my hands. I have inscribed you on, on the palm of my hands, figuratively speaking. Um, so in the Septuagint, you know, as we... Uh, just a second here. In the Septuagint, as we read earlier, it says, Behold, I have painted your walls on my hands and you are continually before me. Okay, so that's that's a very different rendition of that scripture. So uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Isaiah chapter 50. Now again, for those of you who are just joining, we are going to be reading 50, uh, chapter 50, 51, 52, 53. Uh, I know a lot of you are looking forward to getting into Isaiah 53. So you got that to look forward to. Um, until then, of course, all these, every chapter is absolutely amazing here. Isaiah 50. This is what the Lord says. Where is this, the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your wrongdoings and for your wrongful acts your mother was sent away. Why was there no one when I came? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Is my hand so short that it cannot redeem? Or do I have no power to Behold, I will dry up the sea with my rebuke. I turned rivers in wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of, of disciples so that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me. Now, most Christians would say this is, um, and I do believe it is a uh, prophecy of Yeshua. Okay. Um, but you see what happens, what happens a lot, and this is what we really need to understand, because all of these prophecies in the so-called Old Testament 
I can't say all, almost most of them, they're taken. I'm tempted to say out of context, but they're not really taken out of context. What I mean is most Christians, they would say, okay, I gave my back to those who strike me, excuse me, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from insults and spitting. So most Christians would say, okay, so there's the prophecy of him being flogged, okay, which I do believe that's the case. However, my point is this. This is speaking in first person, okay? Isaiah chapter 50 is speaking in first person. So a lot of Christians are guilty of this, okay? They take one verse or a, a few verses, and they ignore everything else around it, which is in the exact same person as those other a few verses that they say that is the fulfillment of Jesus. For example, this here, just to show you guys, uh, Isaiah 50 verse 6, I give my back. And so again, m almost all Christians I know of, actually, I don't know of anybody who would re uh, deny this. Christians would say, this is Jesus. My is Jesus. Jesus is speaking first person here. But my, my, speaking first person, my point is this. The my here in verse six is also the I in verse five, is also the me, or I in verse four, and my in verse four, all the way up. This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. So. If, if this, verse 6, is Jesus speaking, for those of you who are Christians or are listening right now, if this, if, these are, if this is Jesus speaking, my, then way up here in 1, this is Jesus speaking as well, I and my. Okay? So in other words, going back to verse 1, this is what the Lord says, where is where is there the the certificate of divorce by which I Jesus have sent your mother away or to whom of my creditors did I sell you okay so th this is very interesting because we've got up here it says the lord says this Okay, and so the Lord says what? The Lord says, oh, you see how? In the original manuscripts, there are no quotations, by the way. There are no quotation, there are no, there, you know, there's no quotes, uh, quotation marks in the original Hebrew. Um, so why couldn't we say the my up here is also the me here. Okay? It's almost like the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord God, or the Lord, the Adonai yod heh wow -He, has said to me, Lord, yod heh wow -He, the the tongue of disciples has given me, as in, uh, okay. Uh, okay, so let me, let me put it this way. The Lord, this is what the Lord says, okay? And he goes on, Speaking in first person, my, I, um, all these different I's and my's all the way through to verse, uh, to verse three. 
And so the translator has put an end quotation there, probably because of what, it's, what it says here in verse 4. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me. Who's speaking here now? And who's to say there's an end quotation here? Because there's nothing like this in the Hebrew. In the end of verse 3. Okay? So for those of you who are listening or watching and you can't see what I'm doing, I highly recommend you go, go over to YouTube because I'm sharing my screen right now and you can see what I'm actually talking about. Uh, just look for, uh, search for Christopher Enoch. You'll see right there on YouTube. Um, but who's who puts it, like, uh, how do we know that's where the end quote should be? How do, you, how do we know that the Lord is not continually speaking through in verse uh, through verse four, where the Lord, uh, as in capital O or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, as in Yud He Wow He or Yud He Vav He for the modern Hebrew, um, yeah, as some people would say Yehovah or Yahweh or um, um, Yahuwah. Okay, so this is what Yahuwah or Yahweh, Yehovah says. And um, verse 4, isn't this still what yod heh wow -He says? Isn't this still what, he, what he's saying? Right? The, the Lord, the Adonai, yod heh wow -He has given me, yod heh wow -He, the tongue of disciples. It's almost like the Lord said to my Lord in, in Psalms, right? So that I, again, if, if verse 6 is Jesus speaking, then verse 4 is Jesus speaking too. And likely, verse 3, verse 2, verse 1 is also Jesus speaking. Okay? Uh, so that I, I may know how to sustain the, the weary one with a word. Okay, so that, you know, a lot of people can say, oh, yeah, that sounds like Jesus. Yeah, he speaks good words. You know, he sustains the, the, the weary with a word. He, you know, he does more than that. He, he uh, you know, calms the seas with a word. He raises the dead with a word. He heals the sick with a word. He awakens me. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. So who's he? <clears throat> Excuse me. Who's he and who's my? He would be, would be like the Adonai yod -Heh wow -Heh, my being who? Isaiah is writing this first person. Some can say, well, that's Isaiah. But we have, a, this is what yod -Heh wow -Heh says. This is what Yudhe this is what Yudhe Wahe says. Not Isaiah. If you see what I mean. And you see, apparently, this particular Bible seems to put it all in one category, seems to put all of these words all as in, even though there is an end quotation here, an end quote. Uh, it seems like it still puts everything all, all under the, this is what the Lord says, because look at how it's indented, right? The indentation here, uh, this is what the Lord says, and then there's an indentation, right? And, and the indentation lasts all the way through to the rest, all the way right down uh, throughout the rest of the chapter. Okay? Um, so, is this Jesus speaking? 
He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Who's he? A lot of people probably would say it would be the Father. The Father awakens the ear of Yeshua to listen as a student. The Lord God has opened my ear, and and I was not disobedient. So most Christians would love that. Uh, Nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike. There's the flogging right there. My cheeks to those who pull up my beard. Well, there we are right there. Uh, I did not hide my face from insults and spitting. By the way, every time I see a crucifix or a, uh, you know, movie with with uh, someone portraying Jesus in the movie and, and Jesus still has his beard on the cross, I always think about this. I always think, well, according to your Bible and according to what most Christians believe about the fulfillment of prophecy, he should not even have a beard on the cross because that was ripped off of his face. I mean, you know. I did not hide my face from insults and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Again, we got Lord God here. Isn't that interesting? Lord helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have made my face like flint. Well, he, Jesus certainly did as he was heading on to, you know, down the Via Della Rosa to the, to the, uh, to the place of uh, the skull. And I know that I will not be ashamed. So there's lots of confidence there. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has case against me? Let him approach me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Again, we got Lord God. And by the way, for those of you who are interested in this, um, this word Lord, so we got capital L and then small small letters O-R-D, right? So... Um, that is not to be confused with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The reason why they do this is because it's two different words in the original, right? So in the original, we have two different words. More than likely, this is Adonai, and then this one would be the four-letter name of God, the, with all capitals. But you notice, ever since verse 4, right, we got the small letters, O-R-D. Right, so Adonai, yud heh wow verse 4, verse 5, Adonai, yud heh wow 7, Adonai, yud heh wow right? For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have made my face like flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Uh, who has a case against me, let him approach me. Behold the Lord God, again, verse 9, Adonai yud helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will, they will all wear out like a garment, a moth will eat them. Well, isn't that... Isn't that something? Who is... Among you who fears the Lord. The, the, this is not Adonai Yudhe Wauhe, but just simply Yudhe Wauhe. 
Okay. So notice, notice we got something here. We got, we got a pattern. Okay. So in verse four, so I, I do believe at this point that all of this chapter, apart from this phrase, is all capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uh, yod Hey, wow Hey. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, YHWH, Yahweh, or Yahuwah. Um, I believe this whole entire chapter is Yahuwah speaking here. Apart from this, apart from this one uh, phrase here at the very beginning. Um, but notice we have we have a pattern. We have a pattern. Okay. So when when this who, Whoever this first person is, whoever my is or I is or me, uh, be it uh, Yeshua, be it uh, some, I would have to be either Yeshua and or Yod Hey Wow Hey himself, okay? It have to be. Yod Hey Wow Hey, Yahweh, Yahuwah, obviously Yahuwah has. If this is to be taken literally, has cheeks. If this is to be taken literally, has a beard. If this is to be taken literally, has a face that someone can actually spit on. Okay, if this is to be taken literally. But notice, notice this. Whenever this person who's talking, <laughs> whenever Yod Hey Wow Hey is talking here, um, and refers to the Lord God dealing directly with him, it's always this. Okay, so let's let's check it out here in the um let's confirm this in the interlinear Bible. Isaiah 50 verse 4. Right, so we'll go over to Isaiah 50 verse 4. Hang in there, folks. This is awesome. Isaiah 50, verse 4. Okay, so this is exactly what I said. It was Adonai, right? We see it right here. Adonai Yudhe Okay, so we got a pattern. We have a pattern here. Whenever Yudhe Wauhe, Yahuwah, whenever Yahuwah speaks of Adonai Yahuwah, it's always prefaced with Adonai, okay? Whenever Yahuwah speaks of Yahuwah helping him, I know that sounds really weird to say that, but whenever we have Yahuwah or Yahweh, whenever Yahweh speaks of Yahweh helping him, it's always prefaced with Adonai. See this? So we got the so we got Adonai Yahweh, or Adonai Yahuwah has given me, Yahuwah, the tongue of the of disciples. Or let me put it this way. Adonai Yahweh has given me, Yahweh, the tongue of the disciples, so that I, Yahweh, may know how to sustain the, the, uh, the weary uh, one with a word. He awakens me, awakens me. Uh, morning by morning, he awakens my ear. To, again, like Yahweh actually sleeps. Uh, the Adonai Yahweh has opened my uh, Yahweh's ear 
And I, Yahweh, was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me. I, Yahweh, give my, Yahweh's back to those who strike me and my, Yahweh's cheeks to those who pull out my beard. Okay. Uh, but again, here again, whenever Yahweh speaks about Yahweh helping him, it's always prefaced with Adonai. Okay. Whenever Yahweh speaks about Yahweh helping him in this chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 50, is always prefaced with Adonai. Now, I, for those of you who are putting comments or, excuse me, questions in the live chat, hang in there. I will get to those questions. Okay. If you hang in there and you do not leave, I will answer your question. But let's, let's follow the schedule here first. I want to read, we got, we got to read a few chapters and then we'll get into your questions. But this is awesome. Isn't this awesome? You guys learning? I mean, I, even as I'm going, I'm learning. For the, for the, for Yahweh, excuse me, for Adonai Yahweh. Again, whenever you see capital L, small letter O, small R, small D, it's usually Adonai, not Yud Hey Wow Hey, but when you see capital, um, like as it is down here, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Yud Hey Wow Hey. But over here, like all these other times when you see capital O, capital D, that is actually that is also Yahweh. They put God in there instead of the Lord because it doesn't sound. I guess just for the sake of the way it sounds, I suppose because it doesn't sound. It sounds weird to say, for the Lord, Lord helps me. For the for the Lord with with small letters, uh, Lord with big letters, with capital letters helps me, right? So you you'll see this, right? You see this? Every time Yahweh speaks about Yahweh helping him, it's prefaced with Adonai. But when Yahweh speaks to other people about fearing Yahweh, it's not prefaced with Adonai. It's just Simply Yahweh or Yahuwah. Okay, so let's continue. This is verse 10. Who among you, who is among you who fears yod heh wow -Heh? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of yod heh wow -Heh and rely on his God. This would be Elohim. Behold, all, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with flaming arrows, walk in the light of your fire, and among the flaming arrows you have set ablaze. This you will have from hand, you will lie torment. Okay, so here's a, I believe this is a reference to, for lack of a better way of putting it, hell, okay? You will lie down. You, whenever they speak about lying down, a lot of times it's talking about death. Okay, you you die in torment. Um. So this footnote, this footnote actually is saying uh, what I just described earlier. Very interesting. Very interesting. Let's go, let's move on to Isaiah chapter fifty-one. Isaiah chapter fifty-one. 
to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock, you were cut. Now, this is interesting. Very, very powerful. You know why? Because for those of you who are familiar with the shepherd of Hermas, this is very, very much like the shepherd of Hermas, right? The shepherd of Hermas speaks about the church, so to speak, being cut from rock. Uh, individual rocks representing individual people who are cut for the building of the church, so to speak. Uh, look to the rock. Look to the rock from which you were cut, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you or gave birth to you in pain. When he was only one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her ruins, and he will make her wilderness like Aden. Or Eden. Aden is really the better way, of, a more accurate way to pronounce it. And, and her desert like the garden of the the Lord, right? As I read, uh, this is an, another note for you guys. Notice scriptures, especially in Psalms, but also here in in the prophets. We have um, it's like a rhythm uh, in 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 these writings. Uh, there are uh, instead of rhyming by um, instead of rhyming. Words is rhyming ideas or rhyming meaning meanings like uh, Eden, okay, the Garden of the Lord, okay. Um, one one uh, one line says Eden. The next line would say Garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and a and the sound of a melody. Pay attention to my people and listen to me, my nation. For Allah, Torah, will go out from me, and I will bring my justice as a light to the peoples. Let's, you know, just let's 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 look up this in the. Uh, okay, let's let's look it up in the. Um, in the Hebrew, interlinear, right? So. Um, Allah, there's Torah right there. That's what's uh, usually when you see the word law, it's translated from the word Torah. Torah is more accurately translated as instructions, though. Although you know, many times it actually sounds better to it's more of a flow when you put law in it uh, to translate it as law, but instructions is is more accurate. Um, So, verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 51. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the people. The coastlands will wait for me, and they will wait expectantly for my arm. You know what? Let's, let's go into Safaria and see what the, the, some of these ancient Jewish sages say about that phrase. My righteousness is near. My righteousness is near. So we got um, safaria.org. 
We'll go into Isaiah chapter 51. Okay. Um, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 51, or excuse me, verse 5, that is, my righteousness is near. The triumph I grant is near, it says here. The triumph I grant is near. So let's look what it says in the actual Hebrew as well. My righteousness is near. It actually says sedek, right, which is very, you know, means righteousness as well. Sedek, uh, my triumph, the triumph I grant is near. The success I give has gone forth. My arms shall provide for the peoples, the coastlands uh, shall trust in me. They shall look for my arm. Okay, commentary. Uh, Rashi. Rashi doesn't say much about that. Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra doesn't say much about it either. All right. Yeah, very interesting. We don't we don't have a whole lot of comment uh, commentary uh, entries on that particular verse. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My and my arms will the peoples. The coastlands will wait, for, and they will wait expectantly for my arm. Raise your eyes to the sky. Then look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke. And the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in the same way. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not fail. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my Torah, my law. Do not fear the taunting of people, nor be terrified of their abuses. For the moth will eat them like a garment. Again, interesting. It's the same kind of. Yes, the moth will be forever in my salvation to all generations. Awake, put on, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now Rahab, or Rahab, uh, says here, a sea monster. Not to be confused with Rahab in Joshua 2. Verse 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea, a path for the redeemed to cross over, and the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with joyful shouting. An everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will they will obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, I myself, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of mortal man, and, and of a son of man, who is like who is made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor. 
as he makes ready for as he makes ready to destroy. And where is the raid of the oppressor? The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of armies is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the the heavens, uh, to to found the earth and to say to Zion, you are my people. Pull yourself up. Arise, Jerusalem, from the, the Lord's hand of uh, the cup of his anger. And this is this reminds me of uh, Jesus in the garden when he talks about the cup, you know, uh, take this cup from me, right? The cup of his anger is what it means. Like looking at uh, this particular, a lot of times, a lot of times, scripture defines scripture. The chalice of staggering you have drunk to the dregs. There is no one to guide you, or excuse me, there is no one to guide her among all the sons to whom she has given birth, nor is there anyone to take her by the hand among all the sons she has raised. These two things have happened to you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword, how shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord. They rebuke the rebuke of your God. Therefore, listen to this, you afflicted, you uh, who are drunk and, but not with wine. This is what the Lord, the Lord, your God, who contends for his people says, Behold, I have taken, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the end of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down so that you, so that we may walk over you and have also made you a major back like the ground and the street of those who walk over it. Okay. Let me just, um, let me just, uh, see what I can do here before we go on to, now again, for those of you who are listening, um, Christian friends of yours, family members, know that there's a live stream right now on, and we're going to be talking about um, we're going to be talking about Isaiah chapter fifty-two, Isaiah chapter fifty-three. Every Christian should actually listen to this. Isaiah chapter fifty. We're getting into some really good stuff here. Isaiah chapter fifty. Not, not that the other stuff wasn't good either, but I mean, just because people know these kind, these these. Um, chapters more especially isaiah chapter 52 and going into uh going into um isaiah chapter 53 people know this very well very well so uh, this is what really makes it interesting um okay isaiah chapter 52 here we are cheer for prostrate zion awake awake Clothe yourself in your strength, Zion. Clothe yourself with your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up. 
captive Jerusalem. Release yourself from the chains around your neck, captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing. And you will, you will be redeemed without money. For this is what the Lord God says. My people went down to Egypt first to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without reason. And now, what do I have, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without reason? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule, the, rule over them howl, and my name is continually reviled all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, on that day, I am, here I am. How delightful on the mountains are the feet of one who brings good news, who is peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen. Your watchmen raise their voices. They shout to get joyfully together. For they, they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Be cheerful. Shout joyfully together, you ruin of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. So that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Do not touch what is unclean. Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not go out in a hurry, nor will you go out, go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Wow. Behold, my servant will prosper. Now again, just to take a second here, those who are those who are um, Christians, basically Christians understand this to mean Jesus, right? My servant is speaking about Jesus. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, for those of you on TikTok over there, I'm just going to pull up here the uh, um, background just so those people would know uh, that I'm on YouTube. There we are. Okay, um, verse 14, just as many were appalled at you, now you see this, my people is not even, it's in italics, which means it's not in the original language. So his appearance was marred beyond that of, of, a, of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what they have not been told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Uh, this he will sprinkle. Uh, in the Septuagint, it says many nations will wonder at him. 
Okay. So uh, it doesn't say many, uh, he will sprinkle in the Septuagint. It says many nations will wonder at him. So again, uh, this is commonly believed to be a, uh, a prophecy of Yeshua. And again, speaking about his uh, floggings and his beatings that he received, um, just as many were appalled at you. Uh, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man. In other words, uh, if this is speaking about if this is speaking about Yeshua, it means that when Yeshua was beaten, I'm, I'm not, not sure how many of you have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and that's pretty graphic. But I do believe that if this is speaking of Yeshua, I do believe it was even worse than than what we see on that movie. So his appearance was marred beyond that of a man. In other words, you couldn't even tell who it was, or even that it was a man. You, you couldn't, he, it was marred beyond that of any other man that's ever been marred, uh, beaten, as you would say, uh, his form beyond the sons of mankind. Again, very, very powerful. Verse, or it's just Isaiah chapter 53. Here we are, guys. Isaiah chapter 53. All right. The suffering servant. Here we go. Verse 1, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This word arm is a uh, uh, it's, it's a metaphor for uh, power, strength. So it's not, it doesn't really, it doesn't literally mean arm of the Lord. It means power of God or strength of the Lord. Uh, and I, you know, we know that because of how all the way through the, the the Tanakh, we see this word "arm" is used in that context of meaning strength or power. All right, so, to whom has the strength or power of the of the Lord been revealed? Of Yodhewawhe, uh, Yahuwah or Yahweh, been revealed? For he, who's he? This is the big question. Who's he? Uh, Christians would tell you it's Jesus. Jews would tell you it's Israel. But in this context, could it be the Lord? As we read in Isaiah chapter 50, when, it, when, it, when the Lord spoke as if he was a man. If you're just joining us in the in the in the you know in in just the last few minutes, uh, I highly recommend after the live stream to go back and listen to the uh, uh, the previous reading that when we read when we read through Isaiah chapter 50, it's absolutely amazing. Okay, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, who's he? Now. Um, Christians say it's Jesus. We don't see the, the name Jesus in here or Yeshua or Joshua or anything of that sort. Uh, Jews say it's, it's Israel. Um, we don't see Israel in here, uh, Jacob or anything of that sort. We do see yod Okay. Very, very interesting. Because back in Isaiah chapter 50, Yod-Heh-Wah-Heh, Yahuwah or Yahweh, speaks as if he is a man that was beaten, that was uh, 
Um, his beard was plucked out. They spit on his face. Okay. And Isaiah chapter 50 has that passage portion of scripture where people, um, they, they, they say that uh, Christians would say that that is a uh, prophecy of Jesus. But it says in Isaiah chapter 50, verse one, that that is actually, let's go back there. Actually, I talk, I'm talking about it so much. I'm not going to go through the whole thing again. Don't worry, but uh, just, just a quick. So this is a, this is what Yahweh says. Yahuwah says, right? And he goes on, goes on to speak like um, he is a man. Yahweh says, the Lord Adonai Yahweh has given me Yahweh, the tongue of the of disciples, the students, a student. So uh, apparently Yahweh, apparently Yahweh, sorry about the hyper, uh, hyper scrolling here, but apparently Yahweh is to be taught. He's a disciple. Who's, who teaches him? Adonai Yahweh teaches him. I say apparently because the end quotations is, is, is in the verse before, the end of verse 3. However, again, in the original Hebrew, there is no um, punctuation like this. Okay, the, the quotation. So, and apparently the whoever... Uh, put this chapter together, uh, believes that this whole entire chapter is what the Lord says. Um, and when the Lord, is, is, he is talking about himself, of course, obviously, I mean, this is simple, simple English here. When the Lord says my or me, he is talking about himself. Me is here. My, I, you know, I, you know. Um, but it says here, I gave my back, my back to those who strike me. My cheeks to those who pull a beard. Who says this? Yahweh. Hmm. And then over here in Isaiah chapter fifty. By the way, if you guys, if some of you guys are just joining us in the in just in just recently, and you did you weren't with us when I was reading through Isaiah chapter fifty, please, highly, highly, highly recommended. After this live stream, go back and listen to Isaiah chapter 50. So here, who has believed our report? So this is our, Isaiah speaking here, our report. To whom has the arm of the Lord, Yahweh, been revealed? For he, who's he? Not talking about Isaiah, our, or anybody in that group. It doesn't mention Israel. It doesn't mention any... For that matter, I mean, to be to be fair, it doesn't mention Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus or anything like that here. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it isn't Israel. I'm not saying it isn't Jesus. I'm not. I'm just making, I'm just, I'm, what I'm doing here is just some critical thinking out loud. <laughs> I'm, I'm critical thinking out loud right now. It does not specify apart from the Lord. So this, he, it appears to be Yahweh. For he, Yahweh, grew up before him. Who? Could it be Adonai Yahweh? Uh, you know, in context of Isaiah chapter 50? For he, Yahweh, the one who 
they um they pulled out his beard he gave his face to uh you know for those who, who's he didn't hide his face from those who spit upon it um Yahweh grew up before him Adonai Yahweh like a ton, a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground What, what does this mean? Well, let's just say this is talking about Jesus. And by the way, let me just say this as well. This is very important to understand this. Um, Israel is a reflection of Jesus and vice versa. I called my son Israel my son out of Egypt. Right? So according to the Gospels, right? Jesus was also in Egypt and came out of Egypt. Um, so, using that theology and that logic, Jesus and Israel are basically a symbol of each other. Okay, getting. I just want to get that out of the way. So, I mean, even if this is Israel, my, my, my point is this: even if this is Israel, it could be prophesying about Jesus too. Even if this is Jesus, it could be it could be prophesying about Israel too. That's what I'm saying. They're both like together. Like Jesus represents Israel. Israel represents Jesus. They're both together. I think it's very important to understand that. Because yeah, I know a lot of Christians would get their nose out of joint. Well, oh, the Jews say it's Israel. So, what if it is Israel? I mean, Israel in other parts of Scripture spoke of Jesus, according to the, the theology of the you know uh, uh, Christianity and and what we read in the New Testament. Israel spoke of Jesus before in in other parts of the Tanakh. Why not here? So. What I'm saying is this: if if you know, to, if someone says this is Israel, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with them because to me it's like okay, one and the same. One represents the other. So it says he's like a, a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground. Um. <laughs> So the dry ground represents the condition, the spiritual condition of uh, of Israel at that time. Okay, um, not very good. A root out of dry ground, like hope. Um, there's life in the midst of death, so to speak. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look at him. In other words, there's nothing, nothing about him that's really all that majestic. Like he doesn't, he doesn't look like you know, uh, you know, Pharaoh or something like that. You know, nor an appearance that we should take pleasure in him. It reminds me of you know when you read through the Gospels. Something is very striking. It's like Yeshua must have been so very common looking 
and because like for example um like he could easily hide in the midst of a crowd right he, he walked through the crowd and they, everybody just lost him um on the road to Emmaus the disciples um who apparently knew Jesus I'm not saying it's part of the 12 disciples, but at least people who knew who Jesus was. Jesus was right there in front of their face, right there, face to face, talking with them, and they did not recognize him. Perhaps because Jesus appeared so common, like just like anybody else. It wasn't like, like how you see in these cartoons or movies where it's like, Jesus is the only one with the white robe with the red, you know, the red belt around, around his, um, around, around and all this kind of, I don't think so. I don't think so. He didn't seem to be much different than anybody else. Remember, people were saying, hey, uh, oh, we know G we know Yeshua. Yeah, we grew up with, uh, you know, we know his parents. We know, you know, uh, oh, yeah. Like, what's so special about him? Like, they, to them, he was just another guy. Nor an appearance that we should take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men. A man of great pain and familiar with sickness and like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore. This word sicknesses can also mean weaknesses. Uh, and our pains that he carried. Um, we yet we are, we ourselves assume that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. Um, okay, I have to say this. I'm pretty sure at this point in time there might be some right now that are watching this that are not part of this group. There might be some, but probably not. But there probably will be some watching the replay. Those who are part of the more of the type of people that are like more of or uh word of faith uh word of um assembly of god you know the name it <laughs> the confession people right the people who follows in the ways of like charles caps and these guys where they're like you know just confess that you're healed because it says you know he sent his word you know in exodus it is written he sent his word and healed them. And therefore it is written, uh, he took our sicknesses, he bore our sicknesses and he carried our pain and by his stripes we, we are healed. Right? That's what it says in the King James, if you read the King James. Um, and so they confess it. And they conf many people confess it, but it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> um, If that's the way it works, if all you have to do is confess Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that this has never happened or will never ever happen, but what I'm saying is it doesn't happen like the word of faith people tell you it it, it happens. It doesn't happen like the you know, the confess crowd the uh, Assembly of God kind of word of uh, Kenneth Hagen, Charles Capps people t 
teach. It doesn't happen like that. Joel Osteen, John Osteen. I'm not sure too much about Joel Osteen. He probably is into that too, but I know John Osteen, his father was more into that. Um, you know, if you're, if you're sick, just keep on saying you're healed, you know, confess that, you know, by his stripes, you are healed. He sent his word and healed you, you know, bless the Lord, all my soul who heals you of all your diseases and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. I'm telling you, um, it's the truth. The vast majority, if not 100% of the time, it doesn't work. Because that's not the way God made it to work. You can't just confess yourself out of a terminal Ill illness. And just do that. Though the power of death, life and death is in the tongue. Yes, it does say that. And this is the problem. This is the problem with a lot of Christians today. They, 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 they take one verse from like Exodus, one verse from Proverbs, you know, a few verses in Isaiah and a few verses over here, a few verses over there. They take, they, it's like, it's like salt and pepper. It's like sprinkled verses all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. And they put it all together in a recipe and put it all together in one pot and mix it all together and make something out of it. That's not the way it should be. If it is a if it is a doctrine that is an important doctrine of truth from God, that's not the way God operates. He doesn't drop like one verse, you know, in, in you know, or two verses, or even ten verses for that matter, in Genesis, and then wait another thousand years, and you know, and then you know, drop another verse in you know, in uh, you know, Ezra or something like that. You know, he doesn't do that. True, important doctrine is in every part of the Word of God. You see, you see it fully, fully preached, fully taught. The message of salvation through repentance is in is in Genesis. It's in Exodus. It's in Leviticus. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Numbers. It's in Joshua. It's in Judges. It's everywhere. Okay, you don't have to take one little verse here. God doesn't operate like operate like that. He doesn't operate like that. Because you gotta you think about it for a minute. Do you think God actually dropped just a hint? You know, in the first few hundred year duration, and then waited a thousand years, and then dropped another little hint, you know, and then waited another five hundred years. Meanwhile, millions of people are living and dying, not knowing a thing. God just didn't, eh, it didn't, it didn't matter to God. He just dropped a few little hints for what? For people today to pick up on and, 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 and actually glean? No, that's nonsense. God doesn't, God told them everything he needed to know for life and told Abel. God told Job. God told Abraham. God told Moses. God told David. Every single part of the scriptures has got the, the the important message in it. I mentioned this before, but, you know, back in the, you know, say 40 years ago, right? There's like this thing where in 1988, Jesus will come back. The rapture will happen. Seven years after that, we'll come back and, you know, and, and we'll be in the, the millennial year, uh, reign of Christ. 
And they even had a book. I'm not sure if you can even buy I'm not sure. You, maybe you can buy it still on Amazon. I don't know. But they had a book. 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. And so they do the same thing. It's the same kind of hermeneutical malpractice. Theological malpractice, that's what it is. They take one verse here, one verse there, a passage over here, a passage over there, and another one, and string it all together and make a doctrine out of it. Don't do that. Don't fall for anybody who does that. In the case of um, Jesus coming in 1988, one of of their arguments was, well, you know, it says that a fig tree, Jesus said that, uh, when you see the fig tree begin to, you know, bud, then you know that the that the end is near. Well, it all. So Jesus said that, but you, you know, rewind like a thousand five hundred years. Rewind like a thousand years, and you'll see that. Oh, uh, the fig tree was likened to Israel. Okay, so that's, they string those together. So Jesus must have been talking about Israel. When you see Israel bud, that means the end is near. Okay, uh, and then Jesus said, "This generation will not pass." Well, what's generation mean? Okay, let's go back and we'll go back in, in 500 years previous to the time of Christ. Oh, yeah. We calculate by our mathematical calculations in what the scriptures say that a generation means 40 years. Oh, so, so okay. So we take this verse, we take that verse, we take the verse that says that uh, Israel, fig tree is like Israel. We, 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 we connect that with Jesus saying that the time when the fig tree buds, that will be the that will be the time when when uh, the the end is near, and then Jesus saying this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Oh, so that so we'll take that verse, and then we'll take another verse in the Bible that says a generation is forty years. So we'll 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 hook it all up together, we'll string it all together, and we'll say, okay, nineteen forty eight, the fig tree started to to bud. So therefore, a gen- and it also says a generation is forty years. Therefore, nineteen eighty eight plus forty years is nineteen eighty eight. Boom, we got it, we got it, we figured it out. Mathematical equation, we know it. That kind of theological malpractice should be shunned at all costs. Don't believe anybody who takes one passage here, another one over here, a verse over there, a verse over there. And this is what happens too in the whole um, the whole doctrine about uh, God's marrying and divorcing Israel versus marrying and divorcing Judah. And this is this is the reason why Jesus had to die. Not Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Well, Jesus had to die because in order to fulfill fulfill Deuteronomy chapter uh, 24, it says that the first husband has to die before the second husband marries her. Come on. Obviously, that means the first husband stays dead. Not resurrected. I know somebody, I was talking to this guy last night. He said he died 30 times. He said he died 30 times. He said that the nurse at the hospital said that she has never, ever seen anything like that in, in her career. He, he went through three different defib machines trying to resuscitate uh, out of all these times. Can you imagine dying once? I mean, this happens to people. They die. 
cardiac arrest or whatever the case is, they get resuscitated. They put the defib on, they shock them and that's it. Okay, their, their heart starts beating again. Can you imagine Buddy? Can you imagine Buddy coming home and going, hi, hi, honey, um, I got news for you. Uh, I, I just, I, you know, I had cardiac arrest for like 10 seconds. I was dead, therefore, sorry, but my our marriage is done, okay? I'm marrying somebody else right now. Sorry, children. You know how, you know how, I'm not even going to say the word what I'm thinking. All I can say is it's, it's false, it's it is horrific, mishandling of the scriptures and of common sense without good critical thinking. My buddy could have gotten married 30 times over legally because he, because he, he, you know, he's like, well, hey, you know, I died 30 times. Hey, you'd be going through wives like crazy then. Obviously, in, obviously the scriptures mean if a, the guy has to stay dead, okay? <laughs> obviously the scriptures are talking about, you got to stay dead in order to qualify for that, okay? Or you can, the other way around, right? So the man, okay, has a cardiac arrest, right? right? Gets taken to the hospital, gets resuscitated, and his wife marries somebody else in the meantime. But he died, and Deuteronomy chapter 24 says, if, he, if my former husband dies, I can get remarried. I am I, oh my, give me a break. What people don't do to to fabricate selling points for Jesus. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Don't fall for it. And same with the, the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it crowd that, that says, okay, it says, uh, by his stripes you were healed in Isaiah 53, 4. And it also says over in Proverbs, the power of life and death are in the tongue. And it also says, in Exodus, he sent his word and healed him. And it also says in Proverbs, in uh, Psalms, you know, that uh, the Lord, all your diseases. So therefore, confess, because the power of life and death is in the tongue, confess that you are healed by his stripes. And the, 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 it's the same kind of theological mishandling of the scriptures. It's the same kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? When people take one verse here, one verse there, one passage here, one passage there, God doesn't work like that, okay? If he wanted his people to know about the, his plan of salvation and how that works, he would, tell, he would tell them. Each prophet actually speaks of the plan of salvation and how God works. Every prophet speaks of it. Namely, repentance and forgiveness. Every prophet speaks about it. And when it comes to these kind of name it and claim it, blab it and grab it kind of thing or any other kind of mishandling of scripture, and it always comes from this kind of thing where, where the, it, it, the problem is people look at the Bible as one book. It still comes down to that. 
Instead of looking at, oh, you know what? Like um, this part of the, instead of looking at it as, you know, if, instead of understanding its historical, chronological um, compilation, instead of understanding, okay, so God spoke this God spoke this to Joe. God spoke to, you know, David. We should look again. It's the theological, what I call theological malpractice, is also based upon the idea that the Bible is one book, and it's based upon Bible canon. Um, which they didn't have in, in Bible days. As I say, Bible canon is not biblical. Do not do that. Do not fall for any kind of nonsense like that, where people, you get a Bible teacher or whatever kind of thing. It's okay to do like how, you know, like how we say, okay, uh, Revelation says that uh, incense is representing a prayers. Okay, so that, I mean, that's a different thing to say. And like how we said earlier that Isaiah chapter 50 and Isaiah chapter 53. Okay, so we put that. But to, but to make it like a, like a, a huge doctrine over it, where people like when they read that book, uh, 88 reasons why Jesus, the rapture will happen in 1988. People actually sold their houses. They stole, they sold their farms. They quit their jobs. They did every, they, all kinds of nonsense. It's horrific. If the message you're preaching as, as, and as the most, as a primary, as an important, a vital message, if that message that you're preaching is not found in almost every book of the Bible in and of themselves, I'm not talking about trying to string things together. If that message is not found there, then don't make it into a like a big deal. Don't, don't make a big deal of it because apparently God didn't. If God just dropped a hint you know, to Job, and then, you know, dropped a hint to Abraham, and then hundreds of years later, dropped a hint to Moses, and then hundreds of years later, dropped a hint to, to, to David, and God didn't tell them specifically the, the, whole, the whole doctrine, then apparently it's not that important. It, it's, not, it's not something that should be made into a, you know, an important doctrine. If God didn't clearly speak it to everybody, what I mean by everybody is the major players within Scripture, right? Moses, again, David, Isaiah, Ezekiel, so on and so forth. All right, let's continue. So, verse 5. He was pierced for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. There it is, that right there. So he was pierced for our offenses. In the footnotes, he was wounded for our offenses. The punishment of our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. Literally, encounter him. Okay. Uh, just out of curiosity, before, before we go on to verse 7, let's see what it says in the Septuagint. All right. So, uh, um, Septuagint, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We brought a report as a child before him. He is as root in thirsty land. He has no form nor commonliness, and we saw him, but no form nor beauty. But his form was ignoble and inferior to that of the children of men. He was a man in suffering and acquainted and uh, acquainted with the bearing of sickness. For his face is turned from us. He was dishonored and not esteemed. He bears our sins and is pained for us. Yet we accounted him to be in trouble and in suffering and in affliction. But he was wounded on account of our sins and was bruised because of our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his bruises we are healed. All we as sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone astray in his, in his way. And the Lord gave him up for our sins. Okay. Go back to the NASB here. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, now by the way, we're talking about generation here. Let me just say this. I need to say this. The word generation doesn't mean 40 years. It doesn't. The word generation, you look it up. You look it up in the original manuscripts, and you look it up in the original uh, language. It, it can mean, especially in the New Testament, it can mean the entirety of mankind. From Adam until today is, is the generation of mankind. The generation of the earth, we have not we've not even finished one generation of the earth, so to speak. Yet, until the earth is done, destroyed, then that generation is passed away. Okay? So when Jesus said, this generation will by no means pass away until all is fulfilled, he wasn't talking about 40 years, obviously. Because that, in that case, 1988 would have been the year. He was talking about the entire lifespan of, the, of humans on earth and the entire lifespan of this, this world. That's what he was talking about when he's generation. In this context, it says, and for his generation. So for his generation, that's a different context. Um, but I, I, you know, I need to say that since we were talking about that just a minute ago. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people, to whom the blow was due? And his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him. Interesting again, the Lord desired to crush him. And so this could be, I'm just saying, this could be a problem with people who say that Jesus is Lord in the sense that Jesus is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Because if Jesus is yud heh if Jesus is Yahuwah or Yahweh, then it pleased Yahweh to crush Yahweh, <laughs> causing him grief in the footnotes. Uh, where are we going to get down here? In the footnotes, made him sick. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his land. So um, in the Safaria, Safaria, uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, let's start with verse five, but he was wounded because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole and by his bruises, we were healed. Now, of course, um, it would say, uh, commentary, um, yeah, so Rashi says that the chastisement due to the welfare that we uh, that we enjoyed came upon him for he was chastised so that there would be peace for the entire world. Now, keep in mind that is in the context that these people believe it was talking about Israel. Um, Ibn Ezra. Doesn't say a whole lot there either. Um, so. Okay. Um, yes. Let's continue here in verse six. This is the JPS translation. We all we all went astray like sheep, each going his own way, and the Lord visited upon him the guilt of all of us. He was maltreated, yet he was submissive. He did not open his mouth like a sheep being led to slaughter like a ewe. Dumb before those who shear her, he did not open his mouth. By oppressive judgment, he was taken away. Who could describe his abode? For he was cut off from the land of the living through the sin of my people and deserved the punishment. Who deserved the punishment? Yeah. His grave was set among the wicked and with the rich in his death. Uh, it says, and his tomb was his, his tomb with evildoers, though he had done no injustice, and he uh, he and has spoken no falsehood, but the Lord chose to crush him by disease. Meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain there. That if he made himself an offering for guilt, he might see his he might see off uh, 
he might see offspring and have long life, and that through him the Lord's purpose might prosper. Okay. Out of his anguish he, uh, he shall see it. He shall enjoy it to the full through his devotion. My righteous servant makes many righteous. It, uh, it is their punishment that he bears. Doesn't say, let me see what we got here in the commentary. Um, so Rashi says he, he would bear in the manner of all the righteous, as it is said in Numbers chapter 18, verse 1, you and your sons shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. Okay, so Rashi likens that verse to Numbers chapter 18, verse 1. Interesting. Assuredly, I, well, wait, you know what, before I get too far here, let's see what Ibn Ezra says. Yeah, so Ibn Ezra, like, like he interprets it as Israel. Israel will sympathize with the heathen nations in their misfortunes, which, uh, which have come upon them for their many sins. Although they, do not although they do not sympathize with Israel in his afflictions, the meaning of this phrase might also be this. The Israelites will pray to God for the other nations and thereby take away their sins. Compare with Zechariah 14, 18. I approve of the latter explanation since its correct, uh, correctness is evidenced by the words which follow. Zechariah 14, 18. However, if the community of Egypt does not make this pilgrimage, it shall not be visited by the same affliction with which the Lord will strike the other nations that do not come up uh, to observe the festival or the Feast of Booths. Okay. All right. Okay, let's go back over to Isaiah 53, verse 11. Actually, let's read verse 10 again. Crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a, gift, a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Um, just a very, you know, this is something that maybe one, one of these days we'll study. Uh, the differences between... Well, the correlation between this and what the guilt offering actually does and how it actually works. Notice it doesn't, it doesn't say he renders himself as a sin offering. Um, but let's just continue here. Verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. But his knowledge, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many. For he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. 
Okay. All right. So, um, that, that concludes our reading for today. I know a lot of you see how many questions we got here. Oh yeah. Lots of stuff going on in the live chat. Um, so, Okay, okay then, says nice microphone. Interesting, we, we got so many people talking about microphones tonight. For those of you who are on TikTok, if you submitted a question before, like there was a little thing, there was a little problem there that I froze for a little while. Um, if uh, if you submitted a question before and if you're still there, uh, please submit that question again uh, because I cannot see the, anything previous to that. I can only see the, the most recent comments. Submit the question again if you did. Uh, my apologies. And I will get to that. See what we got here. Fearfully confident. Welcome, brother. Uh, why are the Gospels written in third person? Um, so it's commonly believed to, that none of the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. So they were all by... They were all written by people who heard, they had other sources they were going by. So, um, you know, this is the thing. A lot of Christians believe that all four Gospels are written by eyewitnesses. You see, that's not necessarily the case at all. Very good question. Um, Okay, let's see what we got here on YouTube for questions. For those who are just joining us, we, we read through uh, several chapters of Isaiah. We read 2 Kings 19, a few Psalms as well. Uh, Will says, what experience have you had with Orthodox Judaism when it comes to them explaining their understanding of Isaiah chapter 53 as they deny Messiah? Um. So I, I'm I'm quite aware of of I've I've heard I don't know how many different Orthodox Jewish rabbis uh, explain uh, Isaiah chapter fifty three, and that's that you know I mean they all say that it's it's Israel it's you know it's talking about Israel it's not talking about the Messiah this is not a messianic uh, uh, passage at all you know they would say that the the messianic Messages of the Tanakh are just talking about the uh, you know, king that's coming, an anointed king 
who will be, they understand that the that anointed king will be physically anointed, like Samuel anointed Saul and like how David was anointed. And, you know, there was some, something that a king that would actually be anointed physically and not so much like this, like a suffering servant that um, was completely rejected. Another thing too is uh, Orthodox, Judea, Orthodox Jews would say that the Messiah has to be anointed and accepted by everybody to be a, a, a legit Messiah. Like, in, and I'm just saying what I've what I've heard them say, and they say stuff like, "Well, you know, look at Saul." Wait, and another thing too is that in in Judaism, and I believe this to be the case. You look through the through the Tanakh. You look through the Old Testament. There are many many people who there are many many messiahs. Uh, Messiah, Mashiach, simply means anointed. So in that way, Saul was uh, one. Saul was a Messiah. David was a Messiah. Um, Solomon, um, and so on and so forth. But of course, you know, I understand. You know, most a lot of people would say, but that's not the Messiah. Um, I understand that. Uh, but a lot of people don't understand. A lot of Christians don't understand that there are actually many messiahs, uh, according to the Tanakh. Um, I have not had any experience talking to them, like debating with them one-on-one about that passage. Uh, I know what they believe, at least I have a good idea of what they believe and what they teach about it. Um, and again, if they say that it's Israel, to me, that's not, that's not, it's not really injured to me. Because you got lots of other, you know, maybe not lots, but there are other places in the Tanakh that talks about Israel that can be prophesying of Yeshua. So again, Israel is like the reflection of Yeshua and vice versa. They they represent each other. Um, I position. I understand their position on it. So I understand the Christian, typical Christian position on it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say, but it will. Uh, excellent question. Uh, you know, we should. I, I do believe we should. And, I, and it, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying believe everybody, believe everything they say. I think, I think, uh, I think you all know me well enough to know, you know, that I always. Um, I always promote thinking. We we need to think for ourselves, and um, we need to really study for ourselves. But I think it's I think it's very very good that uh, it's a very good thing to look into what Orthodox Judaism teaches on a certain subject. Uh, simply because there is a good chance. Again, I'm not saying every time, but there's a good chance they know a whole lot more than Christians do on certain things. Uh, simply because they studied it more, whereas the Christians are more, they're more busy with Paul's letters. They know Paul's letters more than anything. Um, and the Jews, at least those who are Orthodox practicing Jews, um, they know the Tanakh, especially the Torah, uh, quite well. So thank you for your question, Will. Very good question. Going nowhere, ask the question, do you think there were Nephilim after the flood? 
So it actually says in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, that there were Nephilim after the flood, that they saw Nephilim. Although some might, some could argue that that's, that's an exaggeration or that's just used as a, like that's when they, um, excuse me, they went out to um, spy out the land. Um, someone could say, well, that's, they, they just exaggerated, you know, uh, we saw Nephilim there when it, when it really wasn't. Um, however, that's, it is mentioned in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, which is hundreds of years after the flood. So that's whether or not it is, whether, I mean, this is something we can sit down and really pick through and, you know, like in a scholarly, you know, t- taking lots of time to pick through all of the different what ifs and perhaps, and you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, all I can say is it does mention Nephilim, you know, after the flood. So uh, we'll take it for what it, take it for what it is. It could be, um, but it could not be as well. Alex asked a question. What uh, worst case scenario, what if a brand new fresh believer just barely finished the new Testament and enough discerning to see through the modern clown world Christianity wants to keep Torah and, and here's you picking apart Paul and the gospels. And, uh, and see all the hatefulness in this chat and just decides to give up and loses the faith. I mean, if that, if they do that, I would say um, it certainly wouldn't be any fault of anybody that I know here. It would be the fault of the, of the person who told that person, whether it's a pastor or an evangelist, that told that person that the New Testament is 100% God's word for you today, that Paul Everything Paul wrote is is God's word for you today. Uh, that's the only way I could ever see them doing such a thing. You know, if they, or you could also say, you know, it's Marcion's fault, the son of Satan's fault for actually putting Paul in the New Testament. Okay. Um, so uh, put it this way. I mean, I, I take... The position of, if it's true, let's talk about it, right? I I don't want to cover up a lie just for the sake of, you know, I'll cover up a lie just so that they don't lose their faith. Well, if they lose their faith because of the truth, then their faith must not be in the truth anyway. So that's that's a position I take. It, so that person who if if a person ever did that, this is hypothetically speaking. If a person, if that ever happened to a person, um, it would happen because of false doctrine, false teachings that they heard about either the canon of the New Testament or about Paul it, uh, himself. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, on a similar vein, I know Alex, you're not you're not saying this. Um, so I'm not speaking to you. I'm not speaking to you on this, but just, just, it just reminded me of, um, of this thing. It's like, you know, people say to me, I've had a few people say, well, you know, um, uh, I know the road you're going down, you know, you're going down the wrong road and you know, you're, you know, you're going to end up doing this. You're going to end up doing that. You know, you're going to end up doing this. It's like, should I be afraid 
of going down this road just because I might look at Paul the wrong way, just because I might forsake modern corrupt Christianity, should I be afraid of going down this road just for that reason? Or should I say, you know what? I want the truth. If the truth leads me this way, I'm going this way. In other words, what do we choose? Should we choose traditional modern corruption or should we choose the truth? Yeah. That's that's the way I look at it. It's like I am not about I do not believe it is good to to base your faith on a lie. I don't believe it's good. Someone can say, "Oh, I believe, you know, I believe that uh you know, it can be it can be, you know, some crazy idea like, you know, uh, like for example, um I'm just trying to think of something crazy or just to give you an example. So Someone can tell a child, if you don't believe in Jesus, you won't be able to travel 10 miles away from your house or else you'll die. Oh, I better believe in Jesus. Oh, I better believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I better believe in Jesus. So they base their faith on that. And they say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, Christianity all the way. Jesus all the way. Yeah. But when they find out that that was a lie, that's going to turn them away more than anything. That's going to turn them away more than anything. So us talking about the truth is way better for anyone's faith than pastors and evangelists and the modern corrupt Christian narrative that tries to promote Jesus and their Bible and their churches and their denomination and their doctrines on lies. Because when you when someone could find out that they've been duped, which most people have been, if not everybody, but most people, uh, when they find out they were duped, they're going to get angry. And some people can lose their faith completely in the system anyway because they say, I've been duped. So what I would say to you, Alex, is you should be going to these pastors you should be going to these evangelists and these Bible school teachers and say, listen, you're telling people that this is the entire word of God. Every single word is for you today. You're telling people that everything that Paul wrote is the word of God and that he's 100% correct on everything. You should stop saying that because once they find out the truth, they're going to lose the faith. That's what you should be saying, Alex. That's what you should, you should be going to pastors and evangelists and challenging them on that. Now, if they come back the same way I come back, say, well, I'm just telling you the truth. then I would say, well, show me the evidence. And this is what we're all about here. We're all about evidence. This is why we pull up the manuscripts. This is why we do, we, 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 um, uh, we compare manuscripts. 
This is why we look into the ancient Greek and the ancient Hebrew and the different man. This is why we, we, we do studies on the cultural context of everything. This is why we look at, you mentioned Paul. This is why we look at Paul in a factual historical way. We don't, we, we don't really adopt Pollyanity. We want to just look at him for what, who he really was. We're, we're looking for the real Paul, the real Paul, the Paul that, that the disciples didn't even let, they, they didn't give him, they didn't give him any authority at all in Acts chapter 15 or in Acts chapter 21 when it comes to uh, issues and problems within the church. It's like, ha, Paul, you stay back. We're going to make the decision. Paul was okay with it. I mean, that's the way they should have been, right? And that's the way people should be today. And you're reading Paul's letters, and if he says anything that's questionable, okay, okay, Paul, thank you, but no thank you. You stand back. I'm going to read the Tanakh, and I'm going to find out what it really says. I'm going to study it. I'll get back to you on that, Paul. Like the Bereans, Acts chapter 17. I'll get back to you on that. I'll take notes. Yep, I'll sit down. I'll pull up my pen and... I'll take my notes and I'll compare it with the, with the scriptures that come before him. So like again, for example, for those of you who are listening to this and you're, you're not familiar with what we're, um, with what we're saying, um, if Paul said that the Torah is finito, Done, over, finished, out. If if Paul says, you know what, the Torah is, you know, fulfilled in Jesus, we don't have to fill, you know what, we don't have to fulfill it anymore. If that's what he said, and if God said scores of times that the Torah is everlasting and he should and it should be observed forever, which he did. Who's right? Is it Paul? Or is it God? Or is it your interpretation of Paul? Because I think God made it very clear. Because he did, God just didn't say, he, God didn't say just, oh, it's forever. God said it many times in many ways. He said in one portion, he said, you know, it's forever. Another portion, he said, it's, it's, it's eternal. Another portion, he says, it's to all generations. Another person, another portion, he's like, it's to the, to the end of, to the end of the world, basically to the end of, uh, to all, to all generations unto the end forever eternal. Another, another uh, portion, he says, it's perpetual. So, I mean, that, there's just an example. Um, we choose truth because we believe that a lie, even if it's well-meaning lie, for a well-meaning, for a well end, like you know, the means justifies the end, or the end, excuse me, the the end justifies the means. So it's like as long as you get people to Jesus, it doesn't tell you. It doesn't matter how many lies you tell them. Tomorrow the world is going to is going to end. Tomorrow the world is going to end, and you must accept Jesus today. 
Well, that might get a lot of people saved. I mean, or at least that might get a lot of people to say the sinner's prayer, if you want to put it that way. But does telling them a lie to get them to Jesus, does that justify, does that do any good in the end? Or is that going to make them angry? Is that, that could cause them to, to desert their faith. So I think that a new believer, again, I'm just going to wrap up by, again, Alex. Um, if a brand new, fresh believer just barely f- finished the New Testament. Okay, I'll stop there for a second. If they, first of all, before they get into the New Testament, they should know what it is. It is a man-made construction of different texts from different authors at different times that may or may not be in line with the Tanakh, and it's up to you to look for it. That's what how they that's how the believe the fresh believers should approach it. If the fresh believer approaches it that way and he says, yeah, you know what? I see everything the, Tanakh, everything the New Testament says in the New Testament is fully in line with the Tanakh. I, I searched it out. I just didn't believe what the New Testament said just because it said it. I actually researched it. I actually looked it up myself. I actually studied myself. Then I'd say, wow, that, new, that brand new fresh believer must be really, really strong in his faith. Because it will strengthen his faith. Truth strengthens your faith. You put your, you put your faith in the real truth, in the word, with evidence. You know, good hard evidence is, makes for a really good hard, it makes, a, makes for a real good hard foundation. Thank you for asking, Alex. Very good question. Real Truth says, I do not uh, agree with, oh, I do agree. Excuse me. I do not. Sorry. I do agree with your take on on divorcing of Israel. It's pure nonsense. It is. You know what it is? Let me just say this, uh, you know, and I'm glad the real truth, I'm talking about truth. I'm glad the real truth confirmed this because you think about it. It doesn't stand up to, to any kind of scrutiny. It doesn't stand up to critical thinking. It doesn't. Um, not only that, but they are doing what Paul was accused of doing and many of the early church fathers are accused of doing. And that is, again, fabricating a sales pitch for Jesus. Well, Jesus had to die because there had to have been a death of the husband. But he rose again. But he came back to life. Like, Furthermore, again, that kind of theological picking, picking, you know, one here, one there, one there, it, uh, just don't, don't fall for it. Don't fall for anybody who does that. I mean, if anybody does it and they put some heavy, you know, like they, they put a lot of, uh, they put a lot, talk about faith. They put a lot of faith in that kind of doctrine that they, that they concoct doing that. It's wrong. Because if it's true that that God just dropped a hint over here and a hint over there and a thousand years later, another hint over here, and oh, and another 500 years later, another hint over there, guess what? It wasn't very important to God then. Wasn't very important to God. So why should we, 
I mean, if God skipped God skipped a thousand years or five hundred years or seven hundred years to drop another hint, why should we be worried about it? If God skipped millions of people and millions of people again, and then another millions of people, uh, I don't think He did. But even if He did, apparently it's not that important, <laughs> or else He would He would make it very clear to everybody. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much. Uh, the real truth. To Yah be the glory. Um, I'm not really following you here. What is the reason, purpose Messiah died as you see it? Okay, so he died for people who needed a catalyst for repentance. I mean, that's theologically speaking. Historically speaking, he died because he was accused of being a... Um, for insurrection, basically. Like This is the king of the Jews. His charge was over his head, right? This is this is Yeshua, the King of the Jews. Um, so he, I mean, when the Romans crucified him, um, they didn't say, "Oh, let's uh, let's make someone pay the debt for our sins." You know, <laughs> I mean, what, I don't think they were thinking that. I don't think, I don't think, probably most, if not everybody, at that point in time, none of them were thinking of uh, substitutionary atonement. You know penal substitution, vicarious atonement, all this kind of stuff. Um, even Jesus himself said, I don't, I don't come for the righteous. Like I, they're fine without me. I mean, I, they don't need me. I come for the, for the sinners to call them to repentance, just like any other man of God would say. They all said it in one way or another, maybe not in those words, but in in different in different words, they said it. All the other um, men of God that ever came. Uh, said that. Jesus said that as well. He he had all the opportunity. He had all the time and opportunity to preach. Hey guys, I am here to die for you, to die and to take to take your place on the cross, and um, and then my blood will cover your sins, and I will pay your debt so that you don't have to pay it, and uh, and so you can go free. You know, all you guys got to do is just 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 accept me as your Lord and Savior. The closest he ever got to that was during the so-called Last Supper. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. What that means, he certainly didn't go into all that detail that what I just went into, the, the Christian narrative that we know today and what that has been taught for hundreds of years. He certainly didn't go into that detail. Um. I don't believe that a baby needs Jesus to be saved. I don't believe that a toddler needs Jesus to be saved. I believe that they are sinless, okay? And because of that, they are heaven material. Let the little ones come to me. You know, uh, they are heaven's material. They are heavenly material, or not have, I mean, they are they are human beings that are perfect candidates for heaven, perfect candidates for the kingdom, right there. So, um, yeah, I think it's pretty clear 
It's pretty clear. When Simeon took little Yeshua in his arms, the baby Yeshua, did he say anything about, oh, this, this, you know, uh, this is Jesus. He's coming to die for my sins and he's coming to pay my debt. So we need, yeah, that's the purpose for his, that's the purpose for his death. It's going to happen in 33 years. He didn't say anything like that. Simeon, it says, was a righteous man. And in the, in the, in the Greek, it's the exact same word righteous that Paul said when he said there's none righteous. But it says Simeon was, was righteous. It says Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. Righteous, period. Full stop. They were righteous. Can you imagine evangelicals going back in time to, to speak with Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and saying, hey, you need Jesus because you're a sinner. What do we do? In fact, your Bible says we're righteous. Oh no, you're not righteous. You're wicked. You're 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 depraved. You need Jesus. No, it's not what it says. What I say is this: bottom line to Yabi the glory. Some people need. And I say some people again because people like little children that are innocent, they don't need to do this. But some people need to identify with the crucifixion and resurrection of Yeshua to give them power to repent. By faith, I died with him. By faith, I rose with him. Therefore, by faith, I die to sin. I break that slavery of sin over my life. By faith, I live, I live a new life in full, 100% obedience to Torah. And so, to get the value, if you want to use, if you want to put it this way, value for the, the, the death of Messiah, the full value of it, in the best way possible, and to fulfill his mission that he said he's called, he's, he came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon. They're fine. They're, they're good. Um, so to get the full value of it, some people, especially people that are in, in deep you know, addiction, addiction to... I'm not going to say some of the things on online here, but addiction to certain things, immorality, um, substance abuse, they certainly need to, to identify with Yeshua's death and receive. Because you see, Messiah's death without repentance means nothing, according to the scriptures. Because According to the Christianity's own logic, they say that Messiah is our sin sacrifice. Well, you look it up. How does it work? I mean, Messiah is the fulfillment of the law. So the law was fulfilled in Messiah. So everything that the law said about sacrifice was fulfilled with, in the Messiah. But according to the law, sacrifices did not cover sin if repentance wasn't uh, present. 
And what I mean is turning from sin. I'm not talking about remorse. I'm not talking about feeling sorry for your sin. I'm not talking about um, regret. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about turning from your sin. Stop sinning. So without, if you're back in the days of the Tanakh in the so-called Old Testament, if you are caught up in a sin, and you you are continuously sinning, continuously singing, sinning, and you bring your your sacrifices, then your sacrifices are rejected by God. Proverbs twice it says, "The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord." So in other words, you cannot claim Messiah as your sacrifice if you're wicked. If you are a quote-unquote sinner, you cannot do that. According to the word of God, that's an abomination. Amos chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 66. It's an abomination. God looks at that... There will be many people who are going to be, there are many people who are going to be coming with their sacrifice by faith, the Messiah, coming with their sacrifice, and yet they have loads of sin on their back. They're going to get rejected very clearly. And they're going to be shocked. Oh, I thought, I thought that the blood covered this. Who told you that? Who told you that? You read the Torah, the Tanakh, you'll see quite clearly. Again, we, we spoke about this many, many times over. The blood, blood is the least, the least of all the different means of atonement because of the fact that God rejected it so many times. And because of the fact, for example, again, what I said, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. I'm wicked. I'm a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> Oxymoron. <laughs> No such thing. So this is the thing, right? So it's difficult to distance yourself from, from this kind of Christology because of because it's so ingrained in us. And I understand that. It's so ingrained in us. But you if you really study the Tanakh, you will you will see what what scriptures, quote-unquote scriptures, the New Testament church actually went by. You see it throughout the book of Acts, right? Repent and believe. Repent. Turn. Change. Repent of your sins. I know I know. Uh, you know Wade there said the other day that it doesn't say that, repent of your sins in that in that particular, in that phraseology. Wade should know also that it doesn't say Trinity either in that phraseology, right? So, I mean, you can't really go by what is, you know. So, um, and this is the reason why uh, Jewish people, it, it's, be, first of all, 
there are so many millions of Jewish people that rejected Jesus, probably billions, maybe not billions, hundreds of millions anyway, Jewish people who rejected Jesus because of Pollyanity and what it says in the book of the Gospel of John. Okay, so between those two, between those two sources, that is what caused a lot of, a lot, millions of Jews to turn from Messiah. Because they know, talk about the truth, they know the Tanakh. They know it. So that's it, uh, to Yabi the Glory. Thank you for your question. Alex says, uh, I'm being sincere in love. Atheists use the same logic to throw out the entire Bible. Um, I've, I've actually uh, spoke to, I have, I have encountered and spoken with many, many, many atheists over the years. And no, they use some of that logic to, okay, the, the truth of the matter is this. They take some of the facts in the truth, okay? It's not the same logic because the logic, I'll, I'll tell you what logic they use. It's not the logic they use. They, they use facts and truth that, that Christians clearly deny to, you know, against Christians. This is, this is the problem. Again, in, in, a, in a court of law, I'm not sure, Alex, if you've ever been through court, but if you were, if you, if you ever are going through court, the opposing party will do their best to, to disqualify you, to discredit you. And how they do that is trying to get you to admit to something or to say something that is provenly false. Try to get you, try to portray you as someone who denies the facts, denies the truth in anything. And so if they can show you, if they can show the, the judge or the jury that you're a person that actually believes something that's a lie, that you deny the truth against all good evidence, then you are discredited and your entire testimony, talk about throughout the whole, throughout the whole entire Bible, your whole entire testimony will be thrown out. Your whole entire thing will be thrown out. Ah, we can't trust this guy at all because he has a hard time discerning the truth. Okay? So it's, it's, it's extremely important that Christians do not deny the truth and do not deny the facts. So eighth, this is the truth. Okay, again, I, know, I usually don't make truth state uh, truth claims, but I'll, I'll make one right now. This is the truth. Atheists use the, the, the clear and obvious denial of Christians to discredit them. What I mean is, atheists say, oh, look at this guy. <laughs> this guy obvious, obviously denies that fill in the blank when we know this to be a fact. A proven fact. This guy. So they throw out your testimony if you deny facts and truth. When it comes to historical facts of the Bible, historical facts of what we're talking about, like, for example, the letters of Paul and the Gospel of John, this kind of thing, okay? That's what they use to throw out 
your entire testimony about Jesus. Now, talking about logic, the logic they don't use, at least in, from my experience, okay, the logic they don't use. First of all, they don't use logic that what we're talking about here. They're, the logic they don't uh, use, and what I mean is the atheists do not use the same kind of logic that I'm talking about to the fullest extent that I'm talking about it, okay? What I mean is the logic they don't use is this logic. And I said it to him many times over. And I've yet, yet, in all of my years talking to atheists, I've yet ever to see them come up with a good, I mean, even have a good reason for this. Like, for example, an atheist would come on TikTok and say, ah, you know, fairy tale. Yeah, it's just a, fist, a bunch of fairy tales. And what I would say, usually I would say, wow, amazing. It's amazing how a fairy tale, a, a so-called fairy tale, could instantly, completely, instantly set me free from smoking, drinking, drugs, sexual immorality, filthy language, completely changed my heart instantly. Wow. If you know that what, I, that what we're talking about is a fairy tale, then please, I want you to make your own fairy tales that produce the same, the same results. Prove that, prove that a fairy tale can change someone so drastically in an instant as many people have been changed by the power of God. Prove it. Prove it by producing the same, by, the, by producing the same fruits without God. In other words, what I'm doing is I am challenging them like, like Elijah ch challenged the prophets of Baal. Produce the same results using your gods, using your power. If you think that a fairy tale, if you think that, a, 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 you know, a hallucination, you know, a, a delusion or an illusion or any kind of thing like that if you if you think that, it, that my imagination or anybody else's imagination would pr can produce the same fruit i challenge you to do that and produce the same fruit using people's imaginations without facts without truth alex i'm telling you i've never ever seen anybody even come close to doing it. Why? Because they do not use the same logic. Don't let the devil deceive you, Alex. They don't use the same logic. No. Not at all. Not at all. Yes, I cast doubt on the Bible canon, and rightly so, it should be done, because it's not biblical. It's not, it, Jesus, Jesus isn't behind it, God's not behind it. And if Jesus is not behind it, and God's not behind it, why should we be behind it? 
And so, yeah, throw out the entire Bible. Yeah, throw out the whole Bible. And then, then get each book individually and read it individually for what they really are. Main, make sure that they maintain their individuality. Then you will see the truth clearer. That's why I say the Bible is not biblical. <laughs> this is see this is a slippery slope fallacy. Look at what happened to Justin Best, which I don't even know who this is uh, from Christian Truthers, and I don't follow Christian Truthers anyway. Um, he threw out Paul, then the New Testament, then the whole Bible. That's that's what they call the slippery slope fallacy. Okay, it's like don't get a don't get. A credit card, because if you get a credit card, you will go into debt and you will lose your house. You'll become homeless because everybody in the, you know, there are people homeless now and because the reason why they're homeless is because they got a credit card. Therefore, don't get a credit card because people who get credit cards wind up homeless. Um, here's the thing. Okay. Stop putting fear into people. Say, oh, it's how horrible it is to throw at Paul. First of all, I didn't throw at Paul, okay? But even if someone did, so what? Paul's not the Messiah. Paul's not God. Paul has no authority to bring any other truth in the Bible that's not already there. Okay? And here's the thing. If if I don't know Justin Beth best at all, okay? I don't know. So if what he did was wrong, prove that it's wrong by evidence. Why did he throw out Paul? Again, please don't understand me. I never, I have never advocated, I have never said throw out the letters of Paul. Again, slippery slope, fallacy, um, false dichotomy. It's like either take all of it or none of it. No, that's not how it works. Not how it works, you know. Um, as many books I have uh, that are written by very, very good people, and some things that they say are not right. Am I going to throw the whole book out? Of course not, because a lot of it's right. A lot of it's good. A lot of it's really good. I'm going to throw the whole book out. Um, here's here it is. I mean, again, Alex, um, you have to make a decision within yourself. Are you going to follow the narrative? And and just, oh, how dare you do this? Oh my, if you do this, oh, how bad it would be if you if you throw out uh, you know John or if you throw out James or whatever. Hey. Prove that it is false using evidence. Perhaps J Justin Best had some evidence against Paul. And he decided to, to throw out the entire everything about Paul. Okay. The thing is this. It seems, Alex, like you are afraid to follow the truth if it leads you in a, in, in a, uh, uh, on the path of doing things that you consider to be wrong. It seems like you are afraid of the truth, even if it, because it may lead you on a path that could, you could, you could throw out, you, you could do things, you could believe things that are wrong. 
See, really, you're not trusting the truth. You're not, you have no tr- trust in the truth. You're trusting what man has told you. You're trusting the corrupt Christian narrative, which has little to no truth in it. Okay? A lot of what they say is, is not based upon truth at all. Oh, boy, would it be horrible. It would be horrible if you threw out the book of Revelation. If the truth leads you there, why not? I'm not saying that it is, okay? I mean, I, I, I'm i not saying the truth leads you to throw out the book of Revelation. Don't get me wrong. I'm just using that as an example. If the truth leads you to do something, why not do it? Why is it so wrong? Why is the truth so wrong? That's my question to you, Alex. Why is the truth so wrong? Caballero, excellent question. What difference does it make whether Isaiah 53 is or isn't about Jesus? Does that in any way, does that affect in any way the message of salvation? No, it doesn't. Very good question. It absolutely doesn't affect the message of salvation at all. In fact, you look at, again, the book of Acts, you look at, they did mention, I think it was in Isaiah that Philip was talking to the eunuch. but apart from that, one person, one the disciples preached Isaiah 53 to one person. Now, what they said about Isaiah 53, we don't know. What exactly they said and how exactly that's to be interpreted, we don't know. All we know is uh, that it was, it was used by Philip to preach to, to the Ethiopian eunuch. But everybody, all of the thousands and thousands of other people that got saved, eh, they didn't need Isaiah 53. And there's no... There's no um, record of them ever preaching about that uh, to these to these other people. So yeah, very good, very good point, Caballero. Again, Alex, you are what 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 you're saying here is is absolutely false. Okay, um, wherever you're getting this knowledge from is false. It's historically false. Uh, historic uh, Marcion was agnostic or Nicolaitan. Uh, he didn't put Paul in the Bible. Can you give me, I mean, every credible scholar will tell you that. I, I Actually, I've never ran across any scholar that, that said anything differently. Um, it's a historical fact. It's historical fact. He's the one that started the New Testament. And again, please, Alex, you're talking about who put what in the Bible, who put what in the Bible. The Bible is not biblical. Get that out of your mind, okay? Where did God, can you point to me one verse, where did God ever speak to anybody in the Bible to construct a Bible, to put anything in the Bible? Can you please tell me? If you can tell me, you've got a point. If you can't tell me, you have no point and you should not be listening to the false sources you are listening to. You said Paul preached against Gnosticism. On the contrary, he ha- he is declared to be the king of the Gnostics. You need to learn your you need to learn some history, and, st- and don't learn your history exclusively from Paulians. You need to learn some history. He is declared to be the king of the Gnostics. In fact, um, many many scholars believe it. In fact, we had. Um, Dr. Price on here before talking about this, and that he's not the only one. But uh, I mean, you look at history, and I actually got a I'm working on a book on that. Actually, uh, that um, in history, 
the Gnostics and the Marcionites were like the first ones to actually follow Paul. Paul preached in Asia, but Asia rejected him in the end. Why? Can you answer me that? Can you give me some evidence why? I would love to know. You, 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 you must be listening to uh, Paul worshiping Paulians who are making stuff up and denying reality. Please don't do that. I mean, you can if you want, but I, I mean, I, I wouldn't if I were you. And it says, Paul said, we uphold the law. Yeah. Um, however, uh, in many other places, he shoots, he seems to shoot that down. Most pastors, most Christian pastors and most churches, in fact, probably 99.9%, probably even more Christians disagree with the idea that Paul actually told people that they should follow the Torah. The opposite, like Paul told people they shouldn't follow the Torah. They don't have to. And upholding the law is actually following Torah. You know that. I mean, it's impossible to say we uphold the law, but the law says to follow the, the Torah says to do all the commandments forever. And it's, 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 it's in effect forever. Uh, so what one John says, what then is your opinion as to whom Isaiah 53 is talking about Yeshua or Israel or someone else? So, in my opinion, and I love the way you, you worded that. It's good. I'm just, it's really good. Um, in my opinion, in my opinion, it's talking about Yeshua, and it can be applied to Israel too. But more, more, more uh, clearly, it's it is about Yeshua. If someone else has a different opinion, I, I mean, to me, again, uh, I think Caballero made a good point as well. Like it's it's not like a big, it's not a big deal. And again, you know, it comes right back down to that whole thing. It's like it's like when how many times to how many prophets, how many people did God say, you know, that God say this thing to that you know. Uh, there's only one Isaiah 53 in the Bible. Isaiah 53 is the only time it ever says any of that kind of stuff in that way in the in the in the entire Bible, in the entire scope of Scripture. So, but on the other hand, the message of salvation through repentance is everywhere, everywhere. So, what my point is is that it, it, I don't think people should put like a huge emphasis on like. Isaiah 53. It's it's good. It's 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 you know it, it's you know it's 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 scripture for sure. But um, I mean, if God if God says something, if God says something to a thousand people, every single person he says the same thing to, but he only said something else to one of those thousand people. I mean, how important is it? Of course, the first thing that he told everybody about, that's more important, as opposed to something that he only told one person in the entire history about. So, Alex, again, it's slippery slope fallacy, what you're doing. I mean, you're saying that I attack Paul and then I quote Paul. I attack Paul, then I quote Paul. Slippery slope fallacy. Actually, no, it's not. It's, it's, um, 
It's the false dichotomy. It's like you either accept everything Paul said. It's either Paul is God or Paul is 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 complete sinner and everything he said is a lie. It's like it's either he said everything is the truth or everything is a lie. It's either 100% or 0%. Um, Alex, I have news for you. I don't know of anybody that's 100%. And I don't know of anybody that's 0%. It's time we have a little bit of dynamics in it, okay? So yes, Paul said some things that were obviously false. Obviously. Like he said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said in, in, in uh, Thessalonians as well, you know, that he will be alive when the rapture happens. We, he spoke to his brothers, right? He wrote to the people in Corinth. And he also wrote to the brothers in Thessal Thessalonica. He said, we, we, not not all oh, some future generation, we who are alive and remain, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. I mean, there's, there's a lot. I mean, you can go through the whole thing. Obviously, Alex, um, if you don't, if you're not open to the truth, if you just want to stick to your guns, no matter what, you're not going to go anywhere. You're, you are going to be food for fodder for, for atheists because they're going to point to people like you and say, Hey, look at this guy. He denies the obvious. And he doesn't go by truth. He goes, he sticks to his beloved doctrine and his beloved Paul more than truth. Okay. So yeah, Paul says some things that are good, that are in, in line with the, the Tanakh. And yes, I have the right to quote that. If Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And he got that from the Torah when sacrifices, you're supposed to identify with sacrifices. Yeah, I can quote that. You know, Paul said, you know, there's righteousness that comes by faith. And he quotes the Torah on it. I can say, hey, Paul said this. That's fine. You know, um, so I got, I got, I got books. In front, I don't want to really hold up any, I don't want to put anybody on the spot here. I got books in front of me of different authors. And some of these books are really, really good. Okay. They're really, really good. They got some really good material in it. They got some really, I mean, it's, it's just awesome. People just need to know this stuff. And it's just, it's just, it's, it's a, it's truth. And it's really good. Truth will set you free. And they might say some things that's not very, maybe it's some things I don't agree with. So maybe it's like, you know, 80% truth, 20% not true. So what, am I going to throw the whole, the whole book out? Because there's some stuff it says in there. It's not true. No. We're not that simple. We're not that like simpletons, okay, that we have to say, oh, give me, just feed me everything is true because I, I can't, I don't have the critical thinking skills to tell the difference. So you got to tell me, is it 100% true or not? We shouldn't be like that. We should, we should think for ourselves. Cat Cool, Matthew says, uh, three questions. How do you argue or reason with a dispensationalist. What is your opinion on the Calvinist doctrine of tulip? And do do we have free will or are we predestined? Um, okay. Just before I get on, with, I'll, I'll answer all these questions and I'll answer a few more. Uh, but um, time is actually getting on here. I don't want to spend a whole lot of more time here. Uh, we can probably, this is, this seems like a night we can go on for a long time. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this question from Matthew. I'll take a few more and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, 
and for those of you who are, uh, if you did submit questions and I didn't answer them yet, uh, a lot of times people submit questions and I've already answered them like 50 times over in previous videos. So um, if you haven't seen my previous videos, go and watch them. Otherwise, um, please come back tomorrow and uh, submit your questions and um, and uh, and I'll do your best. I'll do my best to answer your questions tomorrow. Let's see what we got here. Uh, so first question, how do you argue or reason with a dispensationalist? Okay. Um, these questions, again, these questions, guys, are very, very involved. I mean, I, I can talk about it for a long, long time. And I, I, I don't think it's fair to everybody to spend a whole lot of time. I'll give you just a very brief synopsis of what I would do. So dispensationalism is not in, in not in the scriptures at all. It is a man-made doctrine. Um, and it's based upon a very foolish interpretation of an English word that is a bad translation of Greek words. <laughs> so let me say this. Dispensationalism is based upon a very foolish interpretation of an English word that's based upon a bad, that is a bad translation of a Greek word. Let me explain. So dispensationalism, you'll find it has its roots in the King James people, okay? Because you'll find this word dispensation in the King James, King James Bible several times. So what happened was back in 1611, you know, back in the 17th and 18th centuries when they're translating in, you know, uh, the scriptures, uh, and, um, and they're, they're, they're reworking the King James Bible and such hundreds of years ago, they took a Greek word that means stewardship or administration stewardship. And they translated that into, into dispensation. Okay. Back then, like 300 years ago, dispensation meant that. It meant stewardship, administration. Had nothing to do with time, nothing. Okay. Over the hun like hundreds of years passed, over the years, as a lot of words do, the, the word evolves into meaning something different. A good a good example of that is the word. Uh, let's say even a hundred years ago, the word the word gay mean meant a whole, whole lot different than what it means today. Okay, dispensation meant a, something a whole lot different way back in the seventeenth century as it does today. Today, dispensation means this period of time. Back in those days, it meant stewardship or um, administration, and so. People who did not understand that read the King James Bible. They pe People who had no knowledge of the original manuscripts or the original Greek or anything like that, have no knowledge whatsoever. They have no clue what it means. They just go by, they trust the King James translators to be perfect, which are certainly far from perfect. And so they developed this doctrine that there's a dispensation, you know, there's the dispensation of the law, there's a dispensation of grace. And that's just a couple of the different dispensations. We, I'm pretty sure a lot of you know that. This is the problem. They say law and grace, like, for example, law and grace are like opposites, right? 
law is law. It's like that death comes through law. There's no grace there. There's no mercy there. There's no love there. It's just dead, cold, law. And grace, on the other hand, is where the love is. That's where the mercy is and you know, all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. The truth of the matter is the law existed from the very beginning. It, Adam knew the law. We know that Abel knew the law. That's how that he knew what to sacrifice, how to sacrifice it, how to uh, what sin is. Uh, all the, sin is defined by the law. Of course, it, it, the law was there. Maybe, maybe, or maybe not written down, but it was there. I mean, it was a mutual uh, understanding between God and and mankind. Um. During okay. So let's let's fast forward to to Moses because you know, dispensation that's the age of the law. Start with Moses. So forget about uh, Genesis 25, 26, verse five that says that the law, the Torah, existed with Abraham. Forget about that. <laughs> you see that just that destroys that destroys dispensationalism right there, um, and everything else that happened before, like with Noah and with Job and all that stuff. That they obviously knew the law. Um, so that that destroys dispensationalism right there, but. Fast forward to Moses. So through God's grace and mercy, he saved Moses as a baby. Through God's grace and mercy, Moses was protected and Moses was called through the, uh, through the bush. Okay. Through God's grace and mercy, he delivered his people out of bondage. God is a God of freedom, not a God of bondage. He's a God of grace and mercy. In spite of the fact that probably everybody, they were sinning. There's a lot of sinners back in those days within the children of Israel and the mixed multitude that, that joined the children of Israel, not just the Jewish people, but also the, from many nations. In spite of the fact that they were a lot of, there were a lot of sinners in there, through God's grace and mercy, he had compassion on them. And he, because God is a God of freedom and love and grace, he orchestrated, he set them free from Egypt, right? Through mighty, mighty signs and wonders. The 10 plagues of Egypt. The dividing of the Red Sea. The trip to Mount Sinai. It was all, it was grace and mercy. And freedom. So when God set his people free, what was his gift of freedom? What was his gift of grace and mercy? It was the Torah. As any loving father who loves, really loves his children, he gives his children instructions on how to live life and avoid the pitfalls of life. Avoid the sin that can, as it says, easily entangle. Avoid the sin that can curse and, and destroy your life. In God's, in, through God's love and mercy and grace, he gave them those instructions, just like any loving and gracious father would give instructions to his children. The act of the giving of the law was an act of grace, mercy, and freedom. That's why they call it the law of liberty. That's why they say the law 
expands our tent, so to speak. It expands our dwelling, expands our tent paying, so to speak. It's in other words, it gives you freedom, room. It's the opposite to what dispensationalism teaches. We see God's heart in the law. Ah, oh, if you can't if you can't bring your animal sacrifices, your tithes to you know if it's too far, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Just sell it, and you know basically party. Deuteronomy chapter fourteen. Oh, if you can't um, if you can't you know attend Passover for one reason or another, eh, don't worry about it. We'll do it the next month, okay? You know the fourteenth day of the next month, we'll do it. I mean, we see God's heart in it all. It's a God. It's a God. It's the same God. We're not Marcionites. We're, it's the same God as the God of love, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God who loves and cares for his people, the God of freedom. Read. I, I would, any dispensationalist, I would highly, highly recommend, even if you could, Matthew, sit down with these people and, and read, uh, um, read Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, verse by verse. It tells us how much the law is just so sweet, not bitter. It's the law of freedom, not the law of bondage. It's so lovely and beautiful. Oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation day and night. And on and on and on it goes. 176 verses of Psalm 119 and every verse is about the Torah. They use different terminology, like statutes, ordinances, testimonies, word, but it's all about the Torah. Statutes of the Torah, the ordinances of the Torah, the, the um, testimonies of the, uh, of the Torah, the testimonies of the Lord, which actually is in context, if you look it up in the lexicon, the, the word of the Lord that pertains to Torah. So the so-called age of the law was really an, an age of grace. In so much that the children of Israel, time and time again, were like, his love endures and his, his mercy endures. And, you know, uh, for he is good and his love endures forever. For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Singing, singing, singing like that. If the age of the law was like so bad, there was no grace and mercy. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And it's all based upon the false narrative that the law the purpose of the law is to um is to just prove how much of a sinner you are just how much you need jesus that's not what god said god said over and over and over and over and over and over again and i'm not exaggerating um what the purpose of the law is and that is so that it will go well with you so that things will be well with you. You will, have, you will have a blessed life. Just like, again, how any loving father would give rules and instructions to his children so that things would be well with them. It's the same thing. On the other hand, the age of grace, so to speak, well, age of grace, apart from Paul, even Paul taught Torah in a way, in a way, okay? I mean, he seems to be contradicting himself all the time. Right, so I mean, Galatians, uh, Galatians, like I said, but in Galatians chapter um, five, verses nineteen through twenty-one, that's that's pure Torah right there. It's pure Torah, right? So 
It's like everything. He says, he lists, makes a whole list of sins. Fornication, variation, emulations, revelings, adultery, idolatry, heresies, envyings, uncleanness, lasciviousness, drunkenness, murdering, sedition, sorcery, prostitution, and lying, and anything like this. All such like this. If you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's Torah. Um, First John, lots of Torah in there. Uh, James, pr promoting Torah. James chapter 2, promoting Torah. Oh, uh, Revelation, promoting Torah. I mean, it's, it's, it's all Acts, the book of Acts. For sure, these, these disciples went by Torah. They observed the Sabbaths, the festivals. They went to the temple even. They wouldn't go to the temple for a cup of, a cup of coffee. They would go to the temple for the purpose of what the temple's there for. It wasn't a hangout. It says they would do that daily, go to the temple and the synagogues. So in the so-called age of grace, we see lots of law in there. As much law as you read in Isaiah, probably even more law than what you read in Isaiah or any of the other prophets in the, in the Tanakh. There's a lot of law. So, I mean, there's so much to say about that, uh, Cat Cool. I mean, that's just off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I mean, these people just need to really think about this stuff. If they think about it and they really step back from their doctrine, they really say, hey, you know what? I'm going to test this. And they test it with some good critical thinking skills and they know their stuff. They know their scriptures. It's easy to prove dispensationalism false because it is very false. Thank you, Matthew. Very good question. Tiyabi the Glory says, thank you for your explanation on the purpose of the death of Messiah. Thank you very much. Actually, let me just add something to that. I mean, I think that you know, some people ask me, like, why did, why did Messiah die? Because all men die. <laughs> I mean, I know that doesn't sound, I know, you know what I mean. It's appointed unto men once to die. And really, to think about it, that is the reason why he died. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. That's the reason why he died. What, no matter which way you look at it, if you look at it in the like the like a real you know substitutionary atonement way or another way, whatever which way you look at, it, bottom line is this: the reason why he died is because it's appointed unto man once to die. I mean, you can you can read uh, you can read that in there without a problem. So real truth is, is again, um, okay, so Alex is a Trinitarian, and her issue is that Jesus is not God. Um, and then Alex is like, uh, God is one and he's three. How about it's both? <laughs> um, I know this very well, Alex. I know this very well. Um, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Every Christian I know of, every church I've ever been to has built themselves as New Testament Book of Acts believers, New Testament Book of Acts church. And once again, New Testament Book of Acts church did not have a Bible like we have today. They had the Tanakh. 
they had the 24 books of the so-called Old Testament. I know now we have 39. It, we just split up some, you know, first and second Samuel, first and second Chronicles, so on and so forth. But it's 20, it's the same stuff. It's the same, exactly the same, just split up differently, just chopped up into 39. But in those days, it was 24. Okay. So they had the 24 scrolls, each having its own authority, not all together, not all equal, certainly not all equal. Um, they preached their messages from that scripture. That was scripture to them. It wasn't Paul's letters. It wasn't James. It wasn't anybody. It was just Tanakh. When Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is, is inspired of God. He was talking about Tanakh because his letters were not they're certainly far from scripture. In, in, nobody considered that to be scripture at all um, until much later, much later than they started idol uh, making an idol out of it, uh, like Marcion and so on. Uh, but anyway, um, here's the thing. Where in the book of Acts does it have that kind of doctrine? Let me just let me just go back even further. Okay, let me just say this: in the book of Acts, in the new in the New Testament church, in the book of Acts, they had the Tanakh, twenty four scrolls. That was their scripture. That's what they based all of their doctrine on. That's what they preached from. They didn't preach from the Bible. They didn't have Holy Bible or New Testament or anything like that. Okay. This was, this was the model church, the Book of Acts church. The most most people would consider it to be the perfect church. Their so-called Bible, even though they didn't have a Bible, they had Tanakh. Their their scriptures. If the Trinitarian doctrine, now I'm not, don't get me wrong, Alex. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just asking you a question. If the Trinitarian doctrine is so, 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 so very important, then why is it not in any of the books of the Tanakh from the, from the days of Adam all the way up until Jesus? Why isn't it in any of the books of Moses all the way from Genesis to Malachi, it's not there. It's not there. Why not? If it's so important, why doesn't it say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in any of those books? Why not? Trinitarians believe, at least for the most part, that Jesus being God existed before the creation of the world. So that means Jesus it was in existence, the Father was in existence, and the Spirit of God was in existence. So the Trinity was in existence back in those days, according to the Trinitarian doctrine. And yet, not once, not once, did we read about it? In 1,500 years of, of revealed scripture, not one year, not one day, not 15 days, 1,500 years that God had to tell his prophets about this. Why didn't he? Why not? Don't get me wrong, Alex. I'm not saying 
Yes or no? I'm just asking a question. Why didn't he? Now, some people might say, well, he did. He said, God said, let us make man in our image. But you need to understand that that does not say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And a lot of people interpret that to mean that God is actually speaking amongst with the angels. The angels were there. And the angel, let us make man in our, our image and angels helped in the creation. A lot of people believe that. And I believe that it says something very similar to that in, in the, uh, um, some of the extra biblical materials as well and Dead Sea Scrolls and such like that. However, Whatever the case is, it doesn't, it doesn't plainly say that. So why make a big deal of it? Why? Why make a big deal of it? Matthew says, thanks for responding. Thank you. Thank you for asking. See, a lot of these, a lot of these, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with one more question for Alex. One more question. And then we'll we'll wrap it up, and we'll, Lord willing, we'll 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 be back tomorrow. One honest question, and I would love to see some good, honest, hard evidence, Alex, from you. Okay. And please, if you go talk to Paulians about it, they are definitely going to feed your feed you with a lot of trash, a lot of crap. It's going to just come out of the. I'm telling you, they will. So, consult different sources and use some good critical thinking skills. Use, use your God-given brain. Here's the question. And let me just, let me just I'll, I'll preface the question by, by saying this, because a lot of people don't know this. The vast majority of the Trinitarian doctrine of trinitarian doctrine the vast majority of it the the, the a lot of the weight of the trinitarian of the the doctrine of the trinity is put on the gospel of john and jesus claims about being the great i am that's a lot of weight right there and the gospel of john forget about paul right now the gospel of john puts a, is 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 probably probably even more than paul um on the divinity of jesus I am. He, he's constantly making these I am declarations using the name of God. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am this. I am that. We see a Jesus that's very pompous. We see a Jesus in the Gospel of John that's that's proclaiming proclaiming himself to be divine in every turn. I am this. I am. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Powerful statements from, from you know, in the, in the Gospel of John. Powerful statements. Now, it is pretty much without dispute that the Gospel of John was written last. It was far later than Matthew and Luke and especially Mark, okay? Uh, common consensus amongst most scholars today, Mark was written first, Matthew, Luke written 
10, 15 years after, and John written 10, 15 years after that. Now, some people, most, most scholars, most scholars believe that Mark was written around 70 AD. Excuse me, 70 AD. Most scholars. That's like 40 years. Talk about generation. A whole generation. Actually, probably a couple generations. Depends on how you look at it. From the time of Jesus walking this earth in, his, in the flesh. From the crucifixion. From, from the actual events that Mark uh, recorded. 40 years. How can Mark remember? Could you remember a speech that someone gave 40 years ago in detail, accurately? How about an event that you that you witnessed? If Mark didn't witness it, but anyway, 40 years is a long time. Now, there are other scholars such as, um, for example, there are other scholars such as Robin Walsh and Marcus Vincent, okay, who say that there we have evidence that actually all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written in the second century. Even later, like a hundred years later plus, close to 200 years later, according to some of the, the book of the Gospel of John. My point is this. My point is this. The Gospel of John, whether it was written in 90 AD, as some scholars believe, or like 200 AD, as some other scholars believe, whatever the case is, the Gospel of John was written really long time after, like 60 years. Some people don't even live to be 60 years old. 60 years after the fact. Plus, maybe 160 years after, according to some scholars. My point is this. We have Matthew and Luke that lived and wrote their Gospels closer to the time of the events that they recorded. Mark, even closer yet. And the closer you get to the days of Jesus, the less and less divinity you see in the Gospels. Matthew and Luke as ah, a little bit of divinity. There's some in there. Not as much, certainly not as much as the Gospel of John. And Mark, it's like not even, it's like a totally different person. In Mark, Jesus is very quiet. He doesn't want anybody to know who he is. No I am statements anywhere, Alex. None. Like the Gospel of John, like not, just to be clear, because I know someone might say, he doesn't say, I am the gate. He doesn't say, I am the good shepherd. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I am the, res, the, the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I am the resurrection and the life. He does not say, before Abraham was, I am. He does not make any claims like that at all. He's a very quiet individual who didn't want anybody to know. He was so quiet in his trial, he didn't say anything. On the cross, he didn't say anything. Not, he was very, very quiet. My question to you, Alex, is why do we have the Gospel of John 
purporting Jesus as being the great I am in math, Matthew and Luke and especially Mark who lived closer and wrote the thing closer. Not even a hint, nothing. What's the matter with that? What's, what's up with that? There were many people that lived and died between Mark and John. They didn't hear John at all. They didn't read John at all. All they had was Mark. Some people, they had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And a lot of people, like, you know, so the idea is this. Why didn't, like you said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they wrote, you know, about, they wrote a biography of Jesus of the things that he taught and the things that he did, okay? John did too. But why is it? that Matthew, Mark, and Luke doesn't say anything like, like this in there at all. Nothing. Did they forget? I mean, honest question, Alex. Did they forget? Did they forget? Did they not know? Or was it just not important for anybody to know, therefore they didn't write it? They, they, they figured, ah, this, you know, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, I am the door, I am the, uh, you know, I'm the gate, I am the, uh, the, the, the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and before Abraham was, I, ah, that's not, that's not important. Ah, forget it. People don't need to know that, says Mark, says Matthew, says Luke. Why is it we don't have those things in there at all? Why? I'm looking for good hard evidence. I'm not looking for I'm not looking for just explain away implausible nonsense. I'm looking for good hard evidence. Why? Why? Cuz really when it comes to the trinity I find it funny because, you know, the Trinity was invented by the, 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 the term and the whole doctrine who came out of Tertullian, which is rejected as a church father because of his so-called heresies. And uh, he did not, he was not sainted because of certain things like, uh, well, <laughs> but yet they adopt that. Talk about taking the what they considered what they considered to be good and 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 not what you know not what they consider to be false that's exactly what the church has done in the in the doctrine of the trinity with tertullian they took what they believed to be true and they rejected what they believed to be false they the church as a whole does did exactly what i'm doing to paul i'm taking what i consider to be good and the things that are not so good or at least the things that are interpreted as being not so good. Why? If 99.9% .9 of everybody interprets Paul, a certain passage to mean something that's against all the rest of the word of God, even if he meant something different, even, oh, well, he said that, but he didn't mean that. And yes, 99.99% .99 of everybody, including the early church fathers, including Marcion, including everybody that lived back in his day, all considered him to be saying that, you know, against the Torah and all this stuff, including Peter and James and the elders in Acts chapter 21. Why should I quote that stuff? Apart from just pointing out that, hey, the, at least the way it's interpreted, 
And it seems like there's very, very good evidence that it's not just the way it's interpreted. It's the way Paul actually meant it. It's wrong. Wrong. And that's okay. Why? Because the New Testament canon is not biblical. Not biblical. It's not God. See, Alex could not answer my question. Where, what verse? Just one. Ah, just one. You heard what I said most of the most of this live stream, almost going on four hours now. I'm gonna I'm gonna close. I'm gonna close very soon. But most of the four hours that passed, I've been saying about how we should not take just one verse here and one verse there and put them all together and string it and make a doctrine out of it. Yes, I totally agree with that. Um, at least, you know, for the most part, make a huge big doctrine out of it. But um here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'd be willing to reconsider my position on the Bible canon if you just, just show me one verse. Just one verse where God called anybody. It doesn't even have to be a prophet or an apostle. Just God told somebody, here's a list of 66 books, put them all together into one book, call it the Holy Bible. Or here's a list of 27 books and put it all together and call it the New Testament. And this is the word of God, 100%. If you can show me just one verse, one. And you know what? That is, that is the, that is the, the foundation of all Christianity, especially evangelical, conservative, even, uh, evangelical, conservative Christianity, modern Christianity, Protestantism, especially that. The, the basis of it all is that God, the, the Bible is, uh, the, the Bible canon is of God. But there's absolutely zero, zero, zip, nada, nothing, no proof, no evidence anywhere. Actually, we have evidence against it, not for it, against it, in the fact that they contradict one another. And yes, I know people explain away contradictions. You can make anything work if you want to. You can take, Peter says this, um, or let me just make it differently. Um, Edward says this, and uh, Jerry says this. Edward says this, and Jerry says the opposite. Jerry says something that's contradictory. You can, you can always explain it in a way that makes it both compatible with one another. You can always explain away any contradiction. Doesn't matter how true or false the contradiction may be. You can explain it away. I'm looking for a verse where it says 66 books or 27 books. And so just in a few a few minutes I will I'll wrap this up. Brick Train says how do you explain the book of Enoch talking about the son of man if the trinity does not exist or the higher priesthood? Sorry, no, I don't really understand your question because the Son of Man is a completely different topic as opposed to the Trinity. It has nothing to do with the Trinity. Uh, and the priesthood has nothing to do with the Trinity or the Son of Man either. So it's 
I, I don't understand your question, Brick Train. I mean, you know, I, I can write a whole book about how the Jesus is the Son of Man and it's still nothing to do with the Trinity and, and priesthood has nothing to do with that either. So it's completely different topics, not really related to one another at all. All right. All right, so my apologies for those of you who uh, maybe you put some uh, questions in there I did not get to. I um, my apologies. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm getting it's, it's getting late. It's we're getting close to four hours here. So tomorrow, same time, same place. We'll be back, Lord willing, at seven p.m. Eastern. And we will pick up where we left off. And again, if you have, if you guys have any questions um, that you want to bring to my attention, please, if you will, come back tomorrow night. If not, we will be here um, this Friday. Well, tomorrow night. Wow, tomorrow night this, isn't this happy? This is fast, right? Tomorrow night is the last night of our scripture reading, uh, chronological scripture reading, as we usually do, um, five nights a week. Friday we have Doctor. Jason Staples on with us. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be an awesome, awesome time. Make sure you tell all your friends and family members about that. Anybody that'd be interested, that is, is it is going to be awesome. And Saturday, another uh um sa Sabbath fellowship. So Shabbat fellowship. Awesome. And um, Lord willing, we'll have uh we'll have some we'll, we'll have another guest on as well on Saturday. So we'll see what happens. Anyways, guys. So the great deception says, thank you, brother. Much love and blessings to you all. Thank you very much, Alan. Blessings multiplied to you. All right, guys. I'll see you again tomorrow night. Again, you guys are awesome. Thanks again for your fellowship and your questions. I appreciate, I appreciate y'all. And um, yeah, awesome, awesome scriptures tonight, wasn't it? Awesome, awesome time. All right, guys, I'll, I'll see you again tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Eastern. Again, we're on again, Lord willing, uh, Friday evening, 7 p.m. and Saturday at 2 p.m. The Real Truth says... Shalom, completeness in our Father and our brother, Yahusha. Thank you very much. Shalom multiplied back to you. Blessings, blessings, blessings. Okay, so we go. You guys want to continue on with your discussion? All right, it's awesome. But anyway, I'm going to be throwing out, I mean, I'm going to be closing, I should say. Um, I'll see you guys tomorrow. As always, as always, guys, I pray the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, give you wonderful, wonderful shalom. Amen, amen. I'll see you guys tomorrow.